This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to episode 17 of Through the Years, the podcast that goes through Ring of Honor reviewing every show from the beginning until we get tired of doing it, which will probably be a very long time, but have no fear, me, Trevor Dame, and him, Matt Feuerstein, will be around for at least another two episodes. Right, Matt? I mean, you never you never know. I mean, I could die right now. I, we, we might not even get through this episode, because I could just die. <laughs> we'll like uh, do a Fast and Furious thing where we'll use clips from previous episodes and piece together a review. Like, yeah, honestly, it's, it's probably doable. <laughs> I'll make my Matt Feuerstein soundboard so I never, ever have to lose you. Let me just real quick say all the names of wrestlers who um, – who I haven't been out, who are appear on this show, who I haven't said yet. All right, so let me see. Dusty Rhodes, Iceberg, David Young, uh, Becky Bayless. No, I think I already said her. Um, I think I think that's that's pretty much it, right? Everyone else has been on the show before. The barroom brawler, old old school brawlers. <laughs> the Midnight Rider, man. How can you forget the Midnight Rider? The Midnight Rider, and something else people should not forget is the Pro Wrestling Only Place to Be Nation podcast network. It's, it's what you're listening to us on right now. And there's not, we're, like, we're not the diamond in the rough here. There are a lot of good podcasts. We're just like one pretty flower in a whole bed of them. Extreme, and a, Extremely pretty. Yeah, we're, I mean, how, we're... How people we've always described us, I would say. We're, we're like a gorgeous petunia, but a very beautiful daisy that just sprouted was the Place to Be Nation greatest WWE um, poll is wrapping up or has wrapped up. And, of course, that means the podcasts are coming. So the podcast I'd recommend that just recently came out is the Made the Cut number one honorable mentions podcast where JT and Aaron are going to go through their honorable mentions for the greatest WWE uh, wrestler of all time list. So I think that's a good recommendation for this episode. And as well, I think we should plug something that isn't a uh, pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network plug. They're getting this free. And that's our old pal, the Cubs fan, just put out the Lucha, Bro- the Lucha blog abstract. And that, for those who don't know, that's a, uh, a nice little 80, I think 80 plus page, um, sort of like in the style of the old Bill James baseball abstracts where I, I've gotten my copy and he just, Cubs goes over the major promotions and every rest in Mexico and all the wrestlers. And the thing I love is it's not a very dry, like this event happened and this event happened. It's like Cubs thoughts on how the promotions did last year, where they're going to go into 2018 and his individual thoughts on like how the wrestlers performed. It's a, it's a fun read. And the best thing about it is it's free if you want it to be free, but Cubs has been so good to us and just such a, I mean, given so much, especially in the realm of writing about Lucha Libre in English, that I would suggest that you pay something. He's on one of those pay-what-you-can sites. Cubs himself suggests just read it, get it for free if you like it, buy it again for a little bit of money. And for those who want to try the Cubs Lucha Blog abstract, that is at payhip.com slash b slash lowercase p uppercase n 
lowercase l, lowercase e. I'm sure it's probably easier just to go to the Lucha Blog Twitter or the Lucha Blog website. I'm sure there will be links to it there so you don't have to rewind and listen to that. But the point is, Cubs is a great guy. Podcasts wouldn't be here without him. And it's a great, uh, a really fun project that he did. And anything that you can do to help out the Cubs fan and also... Anything the Cubs fan does is well worth doing and uh, and patronizing because he is the man. Yeah, and by patronizing, like, by it, don't, like, patronize Cubs and be like, huh, that's good Lutra coverage for an American. Like, don't patronize them that way. Just Although he'd probably, he'd probably take it pretty well. He's a, he's a pretty laid-back guy. He's a very polite guy. I'll say this, Matt. Uh, reading the start of the abstract, Cubs intro is the most self-deprecating thing since our first few podcasts. Like... He prefaces it with a lot of, uh, you know, hopefully this is good enough. And, you know, like, Cubs is very modest. So. Man, I, I, I'll, I'll never be as good at self-deprecation as he is. Yeah, I like, just, I'm just, I'm a crumb compared to him at self-deprecation. Just, yeah, uh. I mean, I'm just such a useless self-deprecator. <laughs> oh, I'm so stupid. <laughs> the, somehow the, the clearing of the throat made it, made it better. So... Well, covering today's show episode, um, there's not much news that happened in the Ring of Honor world between Night of Champions and the show we'll be covering today, which is Epic Encounter. But there are a couple things kind of tan- tangentially related, and I thought I'd bring them up. Um, the first is, between the last show and this show, the, the time span, Paul London won the dang Super 8. And for those who don't know, the Super 8, the ECWA Super 8, was... A kind the first major um, indie wrestling tournament, and I wouldn't say compared to like the big indie wrestling tournaments today, it's not as big. But um, it was big for I mean, it was big for its time for the the scale of indie wrestling that it was back then. An annual eight person one night tournament, and they would get fly ins and occasionally even get permission from WWE to loan one of their guys, and. It's just it's a sign that um how crazy Paul Lennon's career advanced where it went from you know one year ago he's a pretty relative unknown and now he wins the Super Eight. Um, Dave had a report on it uh, in an Observer and apparently the tournament wasn't that good th- that year. It uh, Paul London he's, Dave says from live reports that uh. Paul London looked like he wasn't at 100%. He was still recovering from the sinus surgery that caused him to miss a couple Ring of Honor shows. Apparently, Brian Kendrick lost in the semifinals, and everyone was hoping to see Paul London versus Brian Kendrick, which is pretty funny considering how hard their careers would be tied together basically for the next, I don't know, six, seven years at least after that. So, uh, Well, if Paul Paul London wasn't ready to go at the Super 8, he sure recovered very quickly after that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Kendrick, uh, but lost in the semifinal, so people got mad they wouldn't see London and Kendrick. And the final was apparently, was well, not apparently, the final was London beating Chance Beckett from a uh, indie in my neck of the woods, ECCW, the extra C's for Canadian. And uh, in apparently a disappointing finale that only went eight minutes, which Dave says got pretty consensus two-star ratings. Oy. So... Oh, and our old and Alex Arion also faced um, Paul London in the first round in what was considered a disappointing match. They still have the Super Eight 
every every March or April, uh, and uh, people don't really talk about it anymore. But it yeah, still I mean, happens. Leo Rush was in the finals last year. He lost to and I, Sean Carr. <laughs> and I think uh, Austin Aries and Christopher Daniels have both won it, off, just off the top of my head, of other Ring of Honor alumni. It was a big deal back in the early 2000s. It kind of stopped being a big deal by, I'd like, say, the late 2000s. Yeah, and, and it was a big deal to – like Ring of Honor would plug it on this show and on their website because I think they also had the exclusive rights to be the home video retailer of it. So, right. I mean, it was something that they were they were not shy about plugging the Super 8 and that Paul London had won it because they were hoping you would buy buy the show. I mean, that's just more money for Ring of Honor. But, it's it's again, it's crazy. You know, Paul London's getting so hot and then he goes to WWE and then it's just – like the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, it's not like he did nothing in WWE, but we're not that far away from saying goodbye to Paul London. Just a few more shows. And for a couple of years, he did do nothing in WWE. Like his first couple of years, they, they did nothing with him. Yeah, it's just, um, I mean, I'll have more to say when it's time to say goodbye to Paul, but just uh, frustrating. Yeah, especially but, yeah, watching these, watching these, this time period, you realize like there's, haven't been too many guys that have been wasted to the degree uh, by promotions that he worked for than Paul London did after 2003. And as I've done more digging, also haven't been too many more guys, I think, that left so disenfranchised with wrestling. Like even today, not today, but like in recent times, I was looking up Paul London interviews and he was talking about recently going to Lucha Underground and even then he was still saying like I'm still burnt out on wrestling I'm still kind of jaded with wrestling where I I think somewhere in that WWE run he just lost the love of wrestling so when people like me even were wondering well why didn't Paul London have a better post WWE career for a lot of in, in a lot of me- ways and metrics I mean this is what we're watching right now is Paul London at his best and probably his most happiest and enthusiastic to be doing this yeah i would say so um just in terms of like noteworthy performances and memorable stuff it's definitely the peak you know 10 month period of his career easily yeah so uh it's always good to start the show on a slightly depressing note and something that's only not really depressing more just kind of amusing is the usual Ring of Honor CZW shenanigans because Epic Encounter and uh, CZW on this night, they they were another double shot. They were, I think, CZW ran down the street again at Viking Hall or whatever, and it, they were, you know, they arranged a double shot so that Ring of Honor wouldn't overlap with CZW, except that they did, even though they weren't supposed to. So... Dave Meltzer writes in The Observer, Ring of Honor and CCW ran a doubleheader, which lasted from 4.55 p.m. until almost 2 a.m. in Philadelphia on April 12th. From most accounts, the wrestling was good, Ring of Honor show said to be great, but that it's almost impossible to watch that much wrestling in one day. CCW wasn't very happy because they had to wait for the Ring of Honor show to end, since a lot of the fans bought tickets for both shows, which meant that CCW's best of the best didn't start until 9.20pm. There were comments made at the CZW show by Zandig that, about that, and there may be no more doubleheaders of this type. 
Uh, Dave says CZW drew about 700 fans, but then later in another issue, he got pushed back against that. Other people were telling him, no, they did 1,100. Um, the commission listed it as 950. But yeah, apparently CZW not happy. I think this is the second time Ring of Honor ran long and forced um, CZW to start late. Apparently there were some, also some other problems at Best of the Best because Dave writes that there were problems early because when AJ Styles was eliminated in the first round of the Best of the Best tournament, the crowd was furious because they saw him by far as the biggest star on the show. And Dave says there was also a 30-minute battle royal that killed the show, as well as a 16-minute intermission that started at 20 after midnight. You can't blame ROH for having for booking a 30-minute battle royal. Yeah, CZW. like W. Definitely can't blame ROH on that. The funny thing is, um, I should mention, Dave said nobody can watch that much wrestling, but you know, nowadays WrestleMania alone is twice that long just by itself. Yeah, I mean, tw- we're in the we're in the era of you know the six hour pay per view when you count the pre show, and I, I think the speculation Dave just reported on this week is that with WWE going to dual brand pay per views. Every pay-per-view will be four hours plus a pre-show. So, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it, I, I, I mean, it's still too much wrestling is too much wrestling, but this is less of a weird outlier than it was in 2003. Yeah, it definitely sounds less wrestling. crazy because even like jokes about WWE aside, they really do have like WrestleMania weekend, just a full day of wrestling. We can go to like four different shows in the same day. And a lot of people do. <laughs> so yeah. the, the hardcore fans are as hardcore as ever. Uh, 15 years after the these events that, that was that's a great example because i was just about to bring that up like i see people on twitter saying you know oh i hope i can get catch a a, a car ride from you know the wrestlecon event i'm going to to get to the wwn show that's a half an hour away in time or can anyone get me an uber back from the midnight joey janela show so i think for the hardest core wrestling fans they can handle that much wrestling, not all the time, but for very special events, um, maybe Dave's underestimating just a little bit of the appetite. Yeah. I still don't think it's a great idea, but there there are some wrestling fans that are hangry for this stuff. That is true, and probably was already the case in 20, 2003, I should say. Yeah. And so, finally, we get to the show, the Epic Encounter took place on April 12, 2003 at the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia in front of what Dave claims was a sellout of 500 fans. And the first thing you notice, other than once we get to the show itself, there's a couple pre-show um, segments we'll get to in a second, but I guess I should bring up here, this is also the first show where it's the new lighting system, where the the show is done in darkness with a light with the lighting rig that they have supplied rather than the house lights. They have lasers, little few little lasers for the entranceway. Um, new guardrails. Yeah, the new guardrails where for those who, yeah, who don't watch, instead of like the mesh fence guardrails that seem to come apart like tissue paper, this is more of the solid, thicker bar guardrails. So. I, I think we're one or two shows before they bring back, they bring out the, the metal signs that they put on the guardrails for people to bang on because that that was pretty iconic of roh back then but they don't have them just yet and those gar- those metal like i don't know what they are were aluminum or whatever those guardrails that the fans love to bang on that had the logo on them 
would also be infamous for the number of wrestlers I've heard talk about how they hated those because apparently they had very sharp edges and a lot of wrestlers over the years cut themselves mm-hmm. on those guardrails. But on the bright side for these new guardrails, they're just they're sturdy, so they don't get destroyed every single match the way the, 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 the old ones did. So that's a good yeah. sign. No more Gabe and Doug going. Oh, they're gonna. We're gonna have to pay for that guardrail, like, because these look pretty. Yeah, these look pretty sturdy. I have to say about the lighting. Um, I think it did. It did its job. I mean, I think like watching this, I completely forgot a lot of the time that this was in the same building that almost every other ROH show I've watched was in. Like, it really did look different to me. And um, I do think it's an improvement. I think it added a lot to the atmosphere. I know like the the lighting gets better, much better over the next few years. But I think this this was a a welcome change. I enjoyed it too, and obviously, I think it's something that at the time set it apart from some of its competing indies. I don't know how many were doing shows with this lighting, if any. Uh, but it's funny that you mentioned like for us watching this show, watching every show again in order, it's a big change. But it, I guess in a way, part of the point of having a lighting rig is so that every show looks the same, so you don't get distracted by like oh this look at this building this is a different looking building because ideally you turn off the the light the house lights and just set up the lighting rig and every show should look very similar from this point well which trust me doesn't quite work that way but yeah ex- exactly i mean that's that's what they would be aiming for but um i mean i'm the kind of fan that one thing i don't like about modern wwe and even new japan to an extent is that you don't really get the the character of each arena in the way that they set up their uh, presentation. You know, in the WWF in the old days, I'm, you know, this is an old, um, this is a tired argument that, you know, but I, I'm of the opinion. It's, it's very nice to hear, um, it's, you know, I mean, it's very nice to see, you know, the different entrances when you watch the old WWF events, um, you know, before they had the whole stage and stuff. So I like the fact that you could watch a different show and get a different vibe based on the character of the building. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I get I like that vibe too. I like the character of the building, as you said. I like that kind of baseball vibe where every building's a little bit different and has their own personality. But I can also see the idea of we want the focus just on the ring. We don't want you looking at someone in the fourth row doing something wacky or focusing on how drab this one building looks. So, I mean, I'm sure some of those recent, not recent, but like months ago when Evolve or uh, whatever, the smaller Evolve, like offshoot promotions, had to run in that place where there was like ivy on the the walls or stuff. I'm sure at that point, Gabe was probably wishing he could have had a Ring of Honor style lighting set up for that, but because people were really mocking those shows. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's got its ups and downs. For sure. But we the first segment we see on this show is uh, backstage. We start with the mysterious guy we were introduced on the last show, Night of Champions. The big, tall, black man in the suit. He's bald with shades. He looks like Slugga, but without the dreads. He's wh- I wrote him I wrote him his name as Anti-Slugger. <laughs> 
Slugger and Anti-Slugger. While Anti-Slugger is walking backstage into the Murphy Rec Center, and we just it's a very short little clip, but what I found funny was a lot of fans were kind of ignoring a giant man, like, you know, probably high six feet, and it was funny that he's walking around looking all stern, and a lot of the fans are just milling about before the show. I'm like, yeah, whatever, it's it's anti-slugger, whatever. So that th- th- kind of took away a little of the mystique of anti-slugger. Right, yeah. There's def- there was definitely no mystique to him. <laughs> and then the next segment, um, very interesting segment to say the least. Elsewhere backstage, Alexis Lurie is with her boys, AJ Styles and the Amazing Red, the Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions, Matt. And she says they're the most exciting tag team, the most innovative tag team, and, yeah, they're the champs. Um, I also, at this point, noticed how fugly the Ring of Honor tag team title belts were at this point. Like, they just, anyone that has access to the show, focus on those belts. They are some pretty ugly-looking, cheap-looking title belts. Yeah, they are bad. And Gabe, I think, has even talked about that. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, they were delayed getting the belts. First, they had the trophy, and this is the best they could come up with. So, oof. And um, Laurie says that, Anytime AJ and Red are in the building together, they'll defend the tag titles. As for herself, Laurie says that she'll she's there to make sure that the code of honor is followed and to stop interference, especially from Simply Luscious and Alice in Danger. Laurie says she's um looks forward to giving Ariel a stiff introduction to Ring of Honor tonight in their match. And she kind of definitely, I noticed in this promo, she has some of those real crazy unintentionally crazy mickey james eyes and smile here even when she's just trying to give like a upbeat positive promo there's a there's a bit of something in her eyes where you can see the mickey james of the future <laughs> the the trish stratus mcfeud mickey james so then it really gets going here paul london walks in wearing a headband he has a pair of blue trunks sitting on his shoulder and he's shaking some kind of weird tool uh some kind of weird implement and his first line is, what, you need El Fleury to keep the code of honor intact? Uh, he sets the tool against a wall and tells it to stay like it's a dog. Before he asks AJ what they're going to do against the Briscoes tonight, AJ has to tell Paul that um, it's Red and AJ wrestling the Briscoes because they're the tag t- champs. London tries to grab Red's tag title belt. Red, like, holds on to it. Uh, AJ tries to explain that Red took his place when London was sick. And they got lucky that night and won the tag belts. But at this point, the tool then falls um, down, which um, seemingly unplanned. London yells at it to stay. And uh, that was a funny moment. He's like, just leave it. It's fine. <laughs> and London is getting desperate now. So he um, shows off his new blue tights that he had made so that he and AJ could have matching tights as a tag team. Styles points out that Paul's new tights have the name Styles on the back of them. Lurie starts laughing at London over this. London says that teams that win together look together and pray together. AJ says he's cool with the praying part, but maybe London should have had tights made with his own name on them. Look together is an interesting phrase. What are they looking at together? (laughs) Yeah, that was a weird phrase. I don't know if that's actually a phrase he meant or he just got discombobulated like I often do. But He says like, it twice, though. He says look they, together twice. He shows them the tights like we got to look together because teams that win together look together. He, he, so he actually thinks that looking alike is said as looking together. 
<laughs> and um, London also points out that they're both wearing the same headband. And then AJ has to point out that uh, London's headband says Hard Rock Cafe on it. And Laurie then figures out that it's not even a headband. It's a thong, he says. <laughs> um, this is a new Paul London all of a yes, sudden. We get the real yeah. Paul London all at once. London says that's not the point. It's that Styles never called him after the surgery, his sinus surgery. Styles says London always called him from a payphone, so he had no number for London. London says, what about email? And AJ says the last time he emailed Paul London, he got a lot of porn ads. London tells Red he's not old enough to look at porn ads. So um, he just – Paul being pissy to Red out of jealousy for no reason. At this point, one of the best lines of the entire segment happens. Paul says that Red is like a prop to AJ, like a pencil or an egg, at which point Paul felt the need to clarify what an egg was. So he says, and I quote, you know, an egg that hatches. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love that he had to clarify it. Yes, like an egg that hatches. Styles tells London, finally, they're not partners. Paul tries to put his hard rock cafe thong on AJ's shoulder. AJ throws it off. AJ tells Paul to get his own partner and challenge them. London points out that they also have Laurie and acting like a grumpy, pissy little kid says, do I have to get two partners? AJ asks him, do you? And London immediately just goes, no, I don't. So another just just so so freaking goofy. Uh, London says he just needs one partner to challenge AJ and Red. London says it's all cool between them still, despite this. They're still friends. He puts a fist out and starts shouting thunder, trying to get a Thundercats chant going. And no one taps it. They AJ, Red, and Lurie walk away with Lurie remarking that London is a weirdo. The last thing we see of this segment is Paul says he'll see AJ at church on Sunday. The, the- Matt, the uh, the, the when, when he calls him the egg that hatches, it just it just made me imagine Amazing Red suddenly bursting open and the gobbledygooker appears. <laughs> the gobbledygooker and then like the gobbledy something smaller than a gooker. I, I honestly okay, I'm gonna admit, I was gonna th- I was for a second I was thinking like gobbledygooker was the for some reason my brain thought that's the name for an adult chicken, right? And if I start talking about this, by the time I get to the end of this line. <laughs> I'll have the word for a younger gooker, well, and I'll insert that in for Red. Well, if Red is the gobbledygooker, it actually does make a lot of sense that Eddie Guerrero chose him as his partner the year before. <laughs> Got to keep that in the family. Yes. I So the, so I thought this this segment was, was obviously very amusing, and – you know, obviously, for, and it have, having watched Paul London for a lot of years after this, it's not so weird to see this. I imagine, based on everything Paul London has done prior to this in ROH, this is kind of surprising because he didn't really get a chance to show this character at all. So it's kind of cool. But I do have one kind of complaint, you know, just that, that you know, this kind of made me realize, which is they built this show kind of around a pretty serious match between Paul London and Brian Danielson. And they never have London or Danielson cut anything resembling a promo about the match, about how they're approaching the match, about what the match means to them. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. I know that, that they, they didn't like Danielson's promos and he didn't like his own at the time, although I always thought they were underrated. But they should have had those guys address that match. It's weird that London has this big match and he's just being a dork around AJ and Red, as entertaining as it was. Uh, I, I agree. I'm of two minds of, of this promo. First, I think it's one of the funniest things Ring of Honor ever did. It, I, I so much so that I went through it point by point, and obviously 
for those who haven't seen it, me giving you the points does not do it justice. It is it is a very legit funny thing. And I was also just impressed. It, it is like you flick a switch because before this, the one weakness Paul London had in Ring of Honor was he didn't really have charisma on promos. He was a very straight ahead white meat baby face just rah, I'm going to I'm going to do good and not even rower level charisma he was very plain jane kind of meek in some ways and it's not like like sometimes you see wrestlers often they're slowly progressing getting more comfortable this is just like on off like all of a sudden he's he's the Paul London people would know and like you said from the rest of his career there he's just full of charisma his acting is so good in this segment you know his little rea- facial reactions his inflection on things his thinking on his feet AJ's good as just the the put upon straight man um so for all of that, I love that. It, it, it's crazy that he just found it. Maybe he had it in other places, but it's like he just – it's night and day different in one show. On the other hand, like you said, the the fact that this is one of the biggest matches of uh, Paul London's career and he's doing this comedy segment. And also, Paul London is a great, great babyface, like a traditional babyface. He's one of the best babyfaces, I think, of his generation. Like, just the way he works and looks and how he gets sympathy. And turning him kind of, like, into this crazy, pissy heel who doesn't seem to be aware of things. And not just a heel, but, heel, but like, a goofball. The goofball who calls AJ Styles from payphones and, you know, doesn't know that AJ's the tag champ. And is wearing a thong on his head as a bandana. Like, I don't know if they knew Red had limited, I mean, if Paul London had limited time and Ring of Honor left at this point, but it, it is weird that they went so, or and I don't know, maybe a lot of this was just from Paul London himself, and, it, you know, yeah, I, they I, just I, let them go with it. Yeah, I get the sense that they were just sort of like, hey, I got a funny idea, let's just do this promo, and they, they didn't really micromanage it at all. That That's sort of how I approached it, and they were like, the only thing you got to get through is that you're going to have a match against Red and AJ with a different partner. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. B- because, yeah, th- this... um. You take one of the, t- the one of the most over over guys in the company, and he's playing up a lot of stuff for comedy and comedy. That's the joke is always on him here. So, yeah, it's it's a mixed thing. It's a lot of fun, but definitely like this is it's weird. So often we talk about matches. This is one of the rare Ring of Honor like backstage segments. I would say is worth like going out of your way to watch because it's an interesting moment in time. I would say. I agree. And you posted it, right? You posted it. On yes, your I did. For on Twitter, I sometimes lately when I've been watching the shows, I've been posting occasional little clips of highlights, kind of giving a teaser for the podcast. So yeah, if you uh, there's probably a lot of posts, but if if you dig deep enough, you'll probably I think you'll find it. There's and I'll, and, uh, I'll, yeah. and, I'll and I'll retweet it uh, once the show comes out. Yeah, it, it's a it's not quite all of it, but it's a lot of the best parts. So. And up next is the first match of the show, and that is the Hit Squad, Mafia and Monster Mac, taking on the Backseat Boys of Johnny Cashmere and Trent Acid. The Backseat Boys win in eight minutes flat when Acid pins Mafia after the Backseats hit the T-gimmick, double uh, crucifix powerbomb on him. Uh, I'm actually going to 
give you two matches after this one. I'm going to start this one off because I have some things to say about this match. Before I get into it, I guess we should say that Gabe says that Johnny Cashmere got into the building 15 minutes before the start of the show. He couldn't find a car to give him a ride from Jersey to Philly. Maybe you should have planned that a little bit better. But yeah, apparently, like, for real, Cashmere got to the show at the last minute. Um, Man, I'm going to assume, you know, because Johnny Cashmere is a very responsible guy, that just a car service just, you know, cra- crapped out on him. They like he, he had it scheduled and they just didn't show. That's my guess. <laughs> the other funny thing about Kashmir is um, – I was trying to tie this into a joke with what you just said. But again, my brain's not working today. But um, the other show – the recent show, I think it was the last show, Trent Acid got a bunch of money, like a bunch of girls fawning over him and putting money in, a, in his tights. This time, Johnny Kashmir tries to do the same thing. He tries to – but he this time he's like really begging for it. He's like, come on, give me some money. <laughs> and then two people hand him like what appears to be 50 cents. <laughs> like he has, he opens his hand. He has two quarters in it. So Johnny Cashmere, not Trent Acid in that regard. Um, well, you know these tag teams—they're never quite even in that regard, are they? <laughs> and um, so, yeah. The the weird thing about this match, I thought this match was really, really weird to me because at the start of the match and. At different points, Gabe on commentary is treating this like it's an absolute dream match. At one point, he says, this is like the Super Bowl of Northeast Tag Team Wrestling, the Hit Squad and the Backseat Boys. And he on the recent show, Gabe announced the Backseat Boys signed Ring of Honor contracts. They're regulars. They've you know been racking up a couple wins. And in this match, the Hit Squad basically squash the backseat boys for almost the entire match. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating there. I think at one point on commentary, they use the word squash. Uh, backseat boys do a lot of stooging for the hit squad. They bail to the back twice. The second time the hit squad actually have to go back behind the curtain to drag the, the backseat boys back out. And not, I mean, we're going to give away some developments that happen a little bit later. The hit squad are almost broken up. They're going to have one more ri- match in ring of honor on the next show. And that's it. And yet they're the ones that get to just completely dominate the backseat boys. And it's only where miscommunication happens at the end where I think, uh, is it mafia gets like bumped into monster Mac or something. Yeah. And that allows the backseat boys to hit the T gimmick and like, it's a one move and, and it was just really weird. Like, I don't know if they didn't have enough time to plan this match because cashmere got late, but even that doesn't make sense. Like, they gave the hit squad almost everything when they're the team that's going to be sticking around in the company and the, and the hit squad are the team that are breaking up. I just, it, we can talk a little bit about what happened in the match, but for, for my point, I was just really confused by how they booked this. Well, also the other weird thing was that all of a sudden the backseat boys were full heels, which is not how they were prepared. Um, I mean, and after the match, that wasn't the case anymore, but during the match, they were basically just, yeah, like stooging heels. They ran to the back and, my, the funniest part to me of that was, so they ran to the back, they went behind the curtain, they were back there for let's, about like 20, 30 seconds, and the, ba- and the hit squad went out after them, and they walked to the curtain, and immediately, like, like a second later, came back holding both of them and pushing them back into the ring, and I was like, so the back boys just ran to the back, to the curtain, and then just stood at the curtain? They just- well, they still want to watch the show, that's how good <laughs> Ring of Honor is, Matt, they were like... <laughs> 
<laughs> we we want to get early good seats for that Paul London Brian Danielson match. It's so. like we're yeah, it's like we're past the curtain now. We can just stop. We're just gonna stand here. <laughs> um, no more. Should I just have any further away than this? Should they just have them pull the curtain back and they're like having a cigarette or something, yeah, yeah, just yeah. relaxing? <laughs> but I mean, there were a couple impressive, fun moments in the match. Uh, there was a fun little bit of comedy at the start where. Uh, Johnny Cashmere keeps avoiding a uh, doing a test of strength with Monster Mac, punch you in the face, and then Mac eventually gets the test of strength, but then uses it to punch Cashmere in the face. Steps on his hand. Cashmere tries to tag out with his hurt hand, and he realizes, "Ow, you know, my hand really hurts." Funny stuff like that. And um, Mac did a couple big impressive spots. Um, he had a big crucifix power bomb variation. One of them into the buckles. One of them turned into a flipping kind of flip over slam. Moth hits a big tope that overshoots the target, which will be maybe not the only time we'll see that on this show. And it, but yeah, it's just eight minutes and weird for how they treated the Backseat Boys in in a variety of ways. Weird that they were that Gabe's hyping this as the Super Bowl of you know Northeast Tag when he has to know that this match is just. A squash basically it's not going to be some epic and I, I think the biggest indictment of this match would be when the backseat boys come out you know first match on the show there's probably an extra amount of czw fans because of the double header and the backseat boys are really over and between the heel tactics and i think especially like the bailing out and the squash nature of this there's a point i think around the time they bail out to the back we're all of a sudden the crowd i just noticed got so much more quiet than they were at the start. Like they really, this crowd was really into this match. I think they were looking forward to it. And by the middle of the match, I think the crowd realized we're not going to get what we expected. Yeah. This, like wasn't, what the, we, what, this wasn't the match that they were bargaining for. Um, it was a, they did something different with it than what, you know, than maybe like the indie dream match that they were hoping for. But it kind of does fit in the whole like moth character in the sense of, the Hit Squad never really got to have a good match in ROH. Certainly not a good, like, regular tag team match. You know, they had a couple of those little crazy brawls with the Carnage crew that, you know, I thought were, were decent. But they never really got to just have a tag team match that wasn't either a scramble or a squash. And this fit into the squash category. And I guess the uh, I guess the storyline is just that, you know, the Backseat Boys still somehow managed to sneak away. Because, you know, they got dominated, but the narrative that the commentators pushed afterward was like, were, man, the Backseat Boys are on such a roll in ROH. They won, even though it was sort of like a slip-on-a-banana-peel finish, kind of, because um, Mafia went for the burning hammer on Kashmir, and Kashmir got out, Mafia tried to hit him, Kashmir ducked, Mafia knocked Mac out of the ring, and then the Backseat just hit a quick T-gimmick for the pin. So it wasn't really like a decisive win, but they still all of a sudden switched back into, oh, the Backseat Boys, they're amazing, what a run they're on mode, which I thought was pretty silly. Yeah, especially because I think the thing that makes that really silly is they acknowledged during the match about how one-sided it was, and then immediately once they win, as you said... It's like they're they're acting like it's a big deal, like oh you know the the streak continues, so you you can't really have it both ways. You can't it, you can't treat a match like what it is, which is this fluke win, but then also talk about how impressive like this role the backseat boys are is. But I guess the one thing it does though is helps what comes after the match, which is um, Mafia is really frustrated after losing the match. Um, 
He walks to the back without even shaking hands. And Monster Mac is really confused by this. So planting some seeds for things that will happen a little bit later tonight. Um, The backseat celebrate in the ring until the lights go off. And Special K make one of their first big, like, victim of hardstyle entrances where the few little laser lights they have on the entrance really freak out. This is the first time they ever did this entrance, right? I, I think so. I might have heard the theme before. I'm not, I'm not even sure. This definitely felt like this was the night a few guys got a big entrance for the first time. Because they had the lighting stuff. Yeah, on. yeah. Because they had the they could completely darken everything, then turn back on the house lights. They could tr- use the lasers. It felt like there was more of an emphasis on the entrances with their new bells and whistles here. And so Special K comes out, a whole bunch of members. They all get in the ring. They have a bunch of props. Someone's wearing a sombrero. One of them has a box of Special K cereal. Someone has an empty pill bottle. Someone has a yo-yo. Um, Whiprick gets Mikey Whiprick gets on the mic. He rambles on the mic way too long to the point where Gabe and Doug openly wonder if he's going to get to his point. Whiprick says, the first thing he says is, this show needs more cowbell. And yes, that joke was lame in 2003 also. It was more topical, but no less lame. Well, maybe slightly less lame, but Mikey says the show needed more cowbell, like Matt said. (laughs) Just looking at my notes. Um, Mikey brings up the tag teams he's been in with, Mick Foley and Tajiri, and the tag teams he's trained, like the SAT and Divine Storm. Can I just mention mention that when he says Tajiri, Derange gets a close-up of the camera doing a slanty eyes thing with his hands. Made me very Ugh. uncomfortable. Not good. Now, even in, <laughs> even in two thousand three, I can't imagine that that was considered okay. Yeah, like that's when, like, occasionally when you hear like someone say the term Oriental when they talk yeah. about like Japanese wrestling, it's just like. But Durant I mean, was like twenty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, slanty eyes is even far worse than that. But it also just seems like such a like. Yeah, like you said, like you're you're 20, you're a yeah. kid. Like, <laughs> why are you? Like, yeah, how do you I, know that? Just yeah, I remember watching WrestleMania two, and the first match was Paul Orndorff versus Don Morocco, and Mr. Fuji was Magnificent Morocco's uh, manager, and Paul Orndorff would like at the beginning of the match was looking at pointing at Fuji and then doing this the slanty eyes things, and I was like, you know, this is horrible in 1986, but Paul Orndorff is a guy that I could imagine doing that deranged I don't, I don't know it seems a little bit like you should know better man it just seems like weirdly old-fashioned in yeah. a way i guess yeah. i guess racism never goes out of style matt but no, it sure it doesn't just seems, but um anyway mikey whiprick says special k is going to be the greatest tag team on the indies this brings out dunn of dunn and marcos who of course say that they're the top tag team in ring of honor there's a huge Dunn and Marcos chant for this, which warms my heart, and it actually seemed to surprise Gabe a little, judging from his reaction on commentary about how big a chant that Dunn and Marcos got. I think this was the show where it had been building, but at this point, I think the Ring Crew Express are like undeniably a big cult act, at least in Philadelphia. For like sure. they're very over there now. Yeah, it's well, not they just also, a few people. Also, Boston, because they had like, a couple shows ago, they had that guy who was dressed up like a groupie or a roadie, I should say. In fact, there is someone at this show who has a I mark for Marco sign. Mm. And um, that might actually be the image for tonight's podcast. I'm not sure. Someone on Twitter said that it looked a lot like Colin Delaney. And sa- and he was thinking that it might have actually been former – I mean current indie wrestler Colin Delaney because apparently he used to go to Ring of Honor shows when he was young. I don't know if that's true or not. People can look at the image and judge for themselves. But maybe Colin Delaney was a huge Marcos mark. Could be. Early on. 
uh, just showing the sign gets Gabe to freak out and go, a sign at a Ring of Honor show, which <laughs> made me chuckle. Um, out next comes the Carnage crew, who say they just want to beat people up, which is their MO. Uh, Trent Acid gets on the mic, and he says that he and Casher have business to attend to, which would, of course, be the CZW show later. Um, he says, how about everyone in the ring, though, have a scramble match, and then the Backseat Boys will face the winners next month. And it just get, happens on the fly, which means we're our next match is a three-way tag team scramble match. Special K of Dixie and Hydro, escorted to the ring by Angel Dust, Brian XL, Deranged, Hijinks, Izzy, Lit, Mikey Whipwreck, and Slugger, defeat the Carnage Crew and the Ring Crew Express in 5 minutes, 25 seconds, when Hydro pins Dunn after Whipwreck hit both of the Carnage Crew with Whippersnappers. Uh... Matt, it's only five minutes, but what, how'd you like this as a little dose of scramble action? Uh, I thought it wasn't a great scramble match, but the crowd loved it, and it was entertaining. The, the main thing I noticed is all three of these acts are now like officially over. You mentioned Dunn and Marco. Special K is definitely over. Um, you know, they, they've got, I mean, it's interesting. One thing to, you really notice watching these shows is Special K has gotten a lot of screen time uh, since they've debuted in the past, like, I guess the previous, like, eight or nine months. Like, there, there's been a lot of focus on Special K uh, in the undercards of these shows. So it kind of makes, and in the main event of one of them. So you, so you can, so it kind of makes sense that they're, that they're over. The Carnage crew, I think, is finally at the point where they're turning the corner and becoming an over act. It took them a while, but I think that they're there at this point. Would you agree? I think so, and I, I think being in some of these scrambles and fitting in helps too. Yeah, especially with a, a, a audience that wants to see really good wrestling action. I think once they realized, oh, like the Carnage Crew, like yeah, they'll hit. They can have a gimmick match where they just hit people with garbage can lids, but you know, if they have to be in one of these scrambles, it's not going to ruin the scramble either. Yes, agreed. Um, so you know, it's interesting to have a scramble where you don't have the SAT and you don't have like quiet storm or anyone like that it's just so it's sort of it's it's a different kind of scramble but yeah it's, it's just a bunch of moves i mean um you get the double neck breaker by the carnage crew on dixie like kind of like the uh like the powerbomb neck breaker combo um special k they 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 duck a carnage crew clothesline and then go right into hitting stereo topes on the ring crew express and then loke dives onto the pile then devito hits one then stage dives from both corners at the same time by the Ring Crew ex- Express. So, you know, all fairly uh, by-the-book stuff at this point. Um, but then Derange hits a pretty crazy springboard, moon- springboard moonsault to the floor, um, and which I thought was probably one of the uh, the cooler dives that I've seen in these matches in a while. Derange, I, other than his uh, horrible racism, I've, uh, <laughs> I still enjoy about as much as any of these guys. I just think he, he, he has something. Um, it's hard to kind of, you know, he's not like an amazing wrestler, but he has, he definitely has a lot of charisma and he has some pep in his step. Um, there's a spot where Dixie's nose is bleeding and Gabe says it's broken. And then Doug says, or he's doing a lot of yayo. And Gabe is just like, whoa, like, whoa, we might have to edit that one out. Like Gabe is legitimately amused and also freaked out by that comment because it's just such a aggressively blunt reference to cocaine. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is, it's funny that Gabe got coy about that because there have been special K matches in Ring of Honor where on the outside they would just show a shot of a guy snorting something off of their hand. So he's like, whoa, we've shown it, but you don't can't mention it. Like, yeah, well, it's funny because they obviously talk a lot about drugs and pills and stuff. But once you actually get to like cocaine, which I guess because it has historically been a big problem in the wrestling business, they don't want to actually just talk about so directly. But Doug pretty much said it. He's like, yeah, this he probably has a nosebleed from doing way too much cocaine. Um, and, and and then they make a joke like, uh, you know, what would you know about that, Doug? Ha, 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 ha. Um, you know, you know the drill. Um, but um, so, so there's a, one other spot. It's like a giant uh, pile of guys try to all pin Loke. And then DeVito tries to hit a moonsault on all of them. And they all move. Like just everyone moves <laughs> out of the way at the same time. I thought that was pretty entertaining. Um, then there's a kind of like a double top rope sunset flip power bomb spot by Special K onto the Ring Crew Express, and then um, Carnage Crew hit the spike tri- pile driver on Dunn, and they but they take too long to cover, and Mikey hits both of them with the whippersnapper and uh, put Hydro on top for the win. So is that the first time Jay Lethal has pinned somebody on a main card ROH show? Is that is this an uh, is this an official moment uh, where uh, future champion Jay Lethal gets his first win? Uh, my memory is so bad on these things, even though I've watched and done a podcast about each of these shows. But yeah, I think it is because I remember it seemed like a big deal, like, ooh, like Jay Lethal got the pin here. Yeah. And then so after the match, uh, after Special K1, they're all celebrating and Derange looks at the, the camera and says, hi, TV. You know, Derange, is, he goes the extra mile, you know, but, you know. Um, and then so afterwards, uh, Slugger attacks Marcos. And and that other big guy, anti-Slugger, he gets in the ring and again goes nose-to-nose with Slugger. But this time, Slugger just is just like, yeah, I'm not doing this. And he just slaps the glasses off anti-Slugger. And Special K gets in between. And then Angel Dust slaps him too. But uh, but then um, anti-Slugger hits a full Nelson face slam on Angel Dust. So um, I'd say it's a fairly entertaining segment. Like I said, it's very short. It's not the best scramble ever. But it's 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 nice to see that ROH has so many acts that are over now. Like they've really put in the work, and it's paid off. It's nice that they have lower card acts that are still liked. Like they're not lower card just because like they're new guys or you know they can't cut it anywhere else. You know the crowd likes them. They're just lower card acts right now. So. I thought this was perfectly fun as a five-minute just dose of random spots. That's what the scramble matches are, are sold as. It w- didn't overstay its welcome at all. The sc- slugger, anti-slugger stuff at the end, again, knowing it's not really going to go anywhere, it's weird to see them do that kind of stuff. At one point, Game on Commentary is like, can you imagine what it's going to be like when these two get, fight each other? <laughs> and I was just like, I guess. Probably going to be pretty slow. Yeah. Not last do much like seems, i don't know it seems weird that roh of all like would be pushing that like that's a very wwe thing like these two guys are big can you imagine what it's going to be like to push it doesn't really seem to fit into roh because neither of these guys were known for being like good workers i mean especially especially, especially since one of the guys i have, still have no idea who he is so that that kind of helps the him not being known as a good worker Especially when Ring of Honor has always sold these two guys as um, we don't really know much about them. We don't even know their names. Like it took a long time to know what Slugger's name was. We haven't seen them wrestle. Yet Gabe is still so excited about the prospects of them fighting where it's like we don't know anything about them except that they're big and like to wear suits. Yeah. But- and if, if, listen, 
as far as ROH big guys go, I'm still spoiled by Matt Thompson. So unless I can get Matt Thompson, I don't care about any new big guys that you just randomly throw at me. Yeah, if David said, can you imagine what it's going to be like when Matt Thompson wrestles like Slugger? I would say I can imagine I can <laughs> imagine that. I frequently imagine that because I imagine Matt Thompson against every wrestler. That's exactly right. <laughs> but uh, um, something we didn't have to imagine is the next match, which is a Ring of Honor tag team title defense where AJ Styles and the Amazing Red, scored to the ring by Alexis Lurie, um, successfully defend their titles against the Briscoes. In 11 minutes, when Red pins Jay with a Red Star press. Um, Matt, since I did the first match, I and normally I give that to you. I'm going to let you do this, start this one off too. Uh, this is the rematch from the very last show, Night of Champions. How do you think that this compared to uh, the first Briscoe's AJ Red match? Uh, it was, I would say the other first one was better. Um, I think it had a little more heated. Um, I don't think either match really had too much of a storyline, but um, this was this was solid. Uh, they, they, they noted early that this match was, we give you what you want because we had a poll. And uh, it was, do you want to see a rematch or not? And 84% of you said yes. And I was like, <laughs> I would feel really bad if I were those wrestlers and like no one that poll. I was like, no, we, we definitely do not want to see that match again, please. Um, <laughs> so I feel like that's not really much of a poll. But, um, but you know, it's, it's the usual stuff. They, they do um, good double team moves. You know, it's a pretty hot start early. Um, because, um, you know, the, the, at the beginning, um, it's like sort of a tornado match. Briscoes cut off a tope, and then then the Briscoes go for dives, AJ and Red move, and then they immediately, AJ and Red, jump in the ring and hit these crisscross dives across the ring with really good timing. And I thought that was a really cool way to start the match. Mm-hmm. Um, but it settles down pretty quickly, um, and AJ and Red work over Mark, and Gabe, like, already is like, this is an emerging classic and it's just like, I hate when he does that. It's like, the match literally just started, like, two minutes ago, and you're calling it a classic. Um, and then the, the Briscoes, they, they work over Red. And I have to say, when Briscoes are doing the, uh, you know, the, the heat segment on Red, uh, they look so beyond their years. Just sort of the little things, the quick tags, the, uh, you know, the way that they kind of uh, cut Red off. It's just like, they, they look like veterans. And they are 18 and 19 years old, respectively. It's... It's, you know, the Briscoes have impressed me more than I expected uh, in this rewatch. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. And especially um, Mark. I mean, I'm a sucker for Mark, but I mean, they're both way beyond their years. But when you think of that, Mark probably had less experience. He, He certainly wasn't getting to wrestle all the Ring of Honor shows that Jay was and that he's a year younger. And just you wouldn't. Like there are a lot of guys in the first year of Ring of Honor that were older than them, that didn't look like they would belong in the same ring of the, as them on even on a show like tonight. Like, I, it's I, just, yeah, I agree with all that. And um, so the the heat segment is actually not that long. Like they they, they it's it's the hot tag goes that comes to AJ before I think that I was ready for it, but. Once the hot tag happens, then it gets in back into like what you'd expect, like is the big moves, exciting stuff. AJ comes in, he hits the German suplex faceplant combo on Jay. Mark breaks up the pin. Mark goes to pick. Um, Mark goes to pick uh, him up, but but Red um, hits a, a cool shining wizard to save AJ. Like really cool. Like it, like Mark is like kind of like AJ's like bent over, like Mark's about to pick him up, and Red just kind of like jumps over AJ and hits the shining wizard. Then Red springboards off Mark. Um, Excuse me. Yeah, off of Mark, and when 
when AJ has Mark in like a torture rack, so sort of like the Ode to the Bulldogs kind of thing. But so, but you know, it's not a planned move, so it's it's a lot cooler because you just don't see it coming. So, so AJ has Mark in the torture rack. Red springboards off of Mark and hits Jay with like a almost like a flying flatliner type of move, which I thought was really cool. Then AJ turns the torture rack into a power bomb on Mark, and the crowd goes nuts for that. Um, AJ and Red go for a springboard Rana and Mark on the top rope, sort of like the finish of the first match. Um, but um, but Briscoes, they move AJ out of the way and hit the second rope powerbomb neckbreaker combo, and AJ breaks up that pin, so that was really cool. Mark goes for Rana on the floor, but AJ catches him and hits a Styles Clash on the floor. Then Jay baseball slides AJ. In the ring, uh, Jay goes for a J-driller on Red, but... Red counters into like a Maximo explosion where he just drops him down onto his head, then immediately hits the Red Star press for the win. So um, I thought that the, the finish was really cool. Like just a lot of like really cool moves, like boom, 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 boom. I think the meat of the match didn't really have time to develop in the way the first match did, but the execution was really good. So I thought it was a good match. Um, I don't think it had the heat, and I don't think it was quite as memorable as the first match, but... I I also you know I don't think there was a huge difference in quality between them. Um, and I, I I could see someone preferring this match for a variety of reasons, but I I thought the first match was a little bit better. Uh, I think I would agree. It, it's it's weird give and take for me because it, overall I felt like this match was like the reduced fat version of their first match where. It wasn't the same move for move by any means, but it kind of had the same structure, just less time. Right. It, it, w- it was the same kind of hot start uh, middle segment where, you know, the Briscoes beat down red and then hot end. But this one had a few minutes less to it. I feel like maybe the high points I enjoyed a little more than the high points, but there was just less of those big high points because it was a few minutes shorter. They trimmed it off. And... Um, like I really liked as as you described the them doing the callback to the first match where the Briscoes have the the finish of the first match scout. They're not going to get caught again by that by Red you know Rana Rana a guy into the Styles Clash. They they scout that those crisscross dives at the start. That stuff is so cool to me when two guys can sync up like that, where one you know dives over the top rope and the other's diving through the second rope in the opposite direction at the same time. It just feels like. There's so many ways that could go badly, especially for guys who weren't teaming together a ton. Like this might have been their second match together, unless they were doing stuff outside of Ring of Honor. Well, their third. I mean, maybe... Well, their third match together. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, because they had uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so stuff like that really impressive. Even though um, the Briscoes look like beyond their years and in, in um, how they control the match. I still feel like both of these matches, the heat segment on red was kind of where the match lost a bit of steam. I just feel like they, they, they don't know how to kind of make it engaging yet. They know, they know that there should be a segment of the match where they control and beat up on red and have a hot tag. I just feel like maybe they don't know how to pace it out and do make it quite engaging yet. They don't, but like again, the, they don't give the hope spots and like work the crowd in the, in the way that maybe they would now. Yeah, I mean it's and it only stands out because going to our what we're talking about, they're so advanced in so many ways that when there's a part that looks more like they're kids, it stands out, it reminds you like, oh, yeah, like they're teenagers. You you, you forget about that, and then when they do one thing that kind of stands out as, oh, maybe that's not perfectly honed yet. Like maybe that's something they can learn. Yeah. You, you're just reminded that they're not they're not veteran, they're not 10-year veterans. Right. Um 
there was a little bit of weirdness at the start where Gabe on commentary references uh, Briscoe's promo that didn't happen. And then he talks that about how he thought that Punk versus BJ Whitmer was next, but was wrong in his format sheet. So I don't know if maybe there was some stuff that was edited out or something or Gabe just lost track. But there's no Briscoe's promo on this release. And he was, in fact, wrong about the match order. So I don't know what caught Gabe up there, but I thought that was a little bit interesting. Yeah, this is a, this is a good match. It's 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 comparable to the to the first match. Again, I thought the hires were a little higher, but there's just less of this match to see. Um, I did appreciate that they did, that they did the poll because it's they did have come up with reasons why the Briscoes' first two matches in Ring of Honor were two tag title shots. The first time they were saying, you know, this match was previously scheduled, and AJ and Red being fighting champions decided to put the titles on the line when they didn't have to, and this time they were like, well you know, the fans voted for it. So at least they're not just like giving them two straight tag title shots in at the start for no reason at all. Oh, and the other thing I want to bring up is um, near the end of the match, Red does a maximal explosion on Jay and he drops him right on his dang head and neck. And it looked bad enough that the Red checked on Jay and Red continues to be the most dangerous wrestler in early Ring of Honor for my for my money. It certainly seems that way. Also, I guess one other thing I should I want to bring up real quickly is near the end of the match where Mark like throws himself over the ropes to try and do a Rana on the floor on AJ and then AJ um, counters it into a Styles Clash. I just got like it looked so safe. Like sometimes almost the the Styles Clash looks too safe because when you do it when you take it right it it protects you so much. I was just thinking, has there ever been a move? that is safer, that has hurt more people than the Styles Clash. Like, it's such a weird move where if you take it right, it kind of doesn't even look that great in, in for my money, and it's really safe. But if you take it wrong, if you, like, forget to not to keep your head straight and not do the wrestler impulse to tuck your head, like, you can break your neck on this move. I don't know if there's another move in wrestling like that, where yeah. it's so safe but so dangerous. Yeah, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. Like... But yeah, I guess that's uh, that's that's kind of what that move will be remembered for, I guess. Yeah, it, it's sad, you know, in a weird in a weird way. But and, and it's just crazy that he has a move where basically the guy taking it has to ignore what they're taught to do in every other context in wrestling, which is like tuck your head, tuck your head, tuck your head. So yeah, weird. It's just something that came to me, like really hit home watching this Styles Clash because it was a really safe looking Styles Clash. And next match on the show is CM Punk, escorted to the ring by Colt Cabana, taking on BJ Whitmer. This match ends in a rare no contest in 12 minutes, 25 seconds, when both when um, um, CM Punk German suplexes BJ off the apron through a table at ringside. Both guys take a big bump from it, and they sell it as a no contest after the refs checks on them. So this match was... I would say it, it's not – it was average at best. I thought this this was a match that would kind of con- – it, it's a match that a lot of the people that would uh, call down CM Punk at this point in his career could probably prop up and use it as an example that to justify and like confirm like what they don't like about CM Punk. I thought it looked kind of sloppy and indie in a lot of ways. Like just not, not always a ton of bodges. It just looked sloppy and – um, 
it's funny. I was watching this match. It made me think that back in the old days, punk got called indie a lot. And it's, it made me think how crazy is it that like in 2003, when people used indie as a derogatory term, it was like your body sucks, your ring gear is awful and you're sloppy. And now indies almost when it's used as a derogatory term is almost the opposite where it's like, Oh, you, you have a great body and good gear and you do these moves really precise, but you don't have any heart to it. Like it's almost the opposite where back in the old days, indie just meant like you were unprofessional in some way. Yeah. That's now, very, it's very interesting now. Like, yeah, like the, the, the gear thing, it's just not a thing at all anymore. Oh yeah. It probably is in some circles, but not in the circles that we run in, I guess. Yeah. And, and yeah, now it's like almost like, the, oh, they're mecha- if they're indie now, it's like, oh, their mechanics and look are great, but they just can't tell a story. They're almost too good mechanically and they just don't pay attention to anything else. Or back in the old days, if it was indie, it was like, oh, they have a gut and they're wearing basketball shorts and everything just looks a little bit like not smooth. So this match, um, it was just a regular back and forth indie match that happened to be a little bit sloppy. Um, I thought the part that was in good was actually near the end where they just really started hitting each other. They do a bit of a hockey fight where they grab each other and throw forearms. And apparently, um, punk and BJ wrestled each other the night before for IWA mid South and punk wrote in his live journal that they had beaten the hell out of each other. And for some reason, the one time these two seem to have chemistry watching this match is when they decide just to like throw strikes. And it's weird because so often I hate matches like this where it's like a standard indie wrestling match and then at the end they decide to do like almost a fighting spirit segment where they just decide okay we're gonna just start hitting each other back and forth a lot just because it's a cool moment even though when it doesn't feel like it fits the match but it was one of my favorite parts of this match because it just it looked good um there's a moment in this match where whitmer takes if anyone has ever seen the cactus jack um, versus Van Hammer Clash of the Champions match where Cactus Jack does a giant um, sunset flip off the second turnbuckle to the floor on unprotected cement floor so he can do a sunset flip but it looks like he takes all of the brunt of it and the other guy takes almost nothing uh, BJ basically does that here where he does a big giant like flip dive over the top rope and basically Punk barely grabs a leg and BJ just lands with a sickening thud on the hardwood, like basketball floor, just smack. And the ref has to check on him. It just looked horrible. Like he took a big flip, just right on the hardwood floor, took almost all of it just from him. And I guess my one other complaint with this match, which again, action wise was average execution wise below average, but there wasn't anything special to it. My big problem or not my, even my problem, but like, um, the thing that just is like a trope that bugs me is early on in the match, Punk sets up a table and he even sets it up as at a weird, awkward like side angle because that's how it's going to work for the mat for the spot later. And after he sets up the table, they go back in the ring, they wrestle the whole match, not once until does one guy try and put the other through a table, like until the end where it's just them fighting on the apron organically and magically. Um, BJ spins around after getting hit and it puts him in perfect position to get this German through the table. Like not once does either guy try and put the other guy through a table. And that always just annoys me a little bit where you do all this time to set up a table. And then for the whole course of the match, you just don't try and attempt to put the guy through the table at all. And then magically the table happens to factor in into the finish. Like, Ooh, turns out this table happened to be exactly where we needed it. 
And I know why wrestlers do that. It's because they want you to forget about the table. So it becomes like a big surprise, like ooh la la spot when it happens. But it just seems so fakey when, when you set up a bunch of plunder and then don't do anything till it comes into play. Uh, I, I do think Punk tried to do something with it right at the very beginning when he first set it up. He tried to powerbomb Whitmer over the top rope, but Whitmer like hooked his legs on the rope so Punk gave him a backbreaker. Uh, I might have forgotten that. If so, that's on me, I guess. I uh, still would have preferred more of that, but yeah, then that's on me. But um, So as far as the match, um, I... Like I get what you're saying when you say it was average, like in terms of the quality and stuff, and I agree that it was a very sloppy, very you know, quote unquote indie match. I even put that, but I wouldn't use the word average because I thought this match was pretty different and memorable. Like possibly because of how sloppy it was. Like the big thing that Gabe kept pushing was that where it hit his head a lot, you know, just like he was trying to sell that Whitmer was getting like his bell rung. And like, which to build up the finish, and I do think that that was happening. Like, I think it was very stiff. It looked like very unsafe. You know, I know that Whitmer was selling at the end, but it really looked like he could have legitimately gotten hurt here or gotten concussed just based on how many head strikes he got. Um, you know, and as sloppy as it was, there was one moment where Punk actually hit a springboard drop kick, and I was like, man, that is the most athletic-looking thing I've seen early, like you know, early two thousand CM Punk do. Like, it was just such a perfectly like executed springboard dropkick off the top rope. I was like, wow, where the hell did that come from? But I, I agree with you that the most memorable stuff was when they were just like pitting each other in the head. And that finish, I thought yeah, like it looked really intense and dangerous. The way he just uh, the way Whitmer just like smacked through that table um, and Punk fell on the floor, it really did look like they could like it was very believable that they would have gotten hurt there. So I thought that was kind of cool. So I thought that the stiffness and weirdness of the match actually made it more memorable. I don't think it was a well-executed match in the traditional sense. I don't know that, that they meant it to be what it was. But I didn't. I wouldn't call it average just based on that alone. There are a couple of funny things, though. Bane one is a commentary moment. Um, when Gabe was talking about how much passion Whitmer and Punk have and the things that separate the good wrestler, you know, like the the the, the great wrestlers from just your uh, your weekend warriors, it's like, and they were talking about both guys, and, and Gabe was like, yeah, I mean, they have so much passion and they drive everywhere they have to go, and then Gabe pauses and he's like, I mean, I mean, Punk won that contract, so now he flies, but he used to drive <laughs> everywhere he has to go. <laughs> I thought that was picked, really funny. He picked the one guy that they did an angle about winning an airplane ticket, like yeah. It, to, to to use the he drives far like yeah and that's the thing that it's it's so lovable about Gabe <laughs> that part where he's like awkward but the thing I like about Gabe on these things is a lot of announcers if they fuck something up they'll either be like deer in the headlights or they'll just ignore and be like it's wrestling it doesn't matter if I got that wrong like Gabe almost to a fault will correct himself on stuff like that like like you said he corrects himself almost immediately yeah. <laughs> like he's like well, well actually no he he did win that play ticket yeah and the other thing you mentioned it um uh either I think either on an, in an IM to me I think on an IM to me when you were talking about how Whitmer like he gave he went for a spinning tope onto Punk and and when he landed, his head hit the basketball court. And, and Gabe was like, did you see his head hit the basketball court? It was like a basketball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was, yeah. That, like, again, sometimes Gabe on commentary is pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, something I forgot to mention, actually, is the start of the match where um, Trinity comes out, you know, Raven's manager or accomplice. And she does some Raven poses in the ring before um, – and then uh, 
She then tries to moonsault onto Colt Cabana on the outside, but Colt catches her and just takes her to the back. So Colt and Trinity are not there for the entire match. He throws a couple of light spanks on her ass. Which is which gratuitous. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. Um, this just is, you know, trying to keep the the embers of the Raven feud alive while Raven isn't here for the next couple shows. Um, I also wrote in my notes... This is supposed to keep the Raven feud going, as well as continue Trinity's gimmick of being a girl who can do a moonsault and tries to attack her friend's seconds so they can't interfere, which was also Alexis Lurie's gimmick because <laughs> Gabe knew like two ways how to book a woman. Yep. So I, I um, I guess one other, uh, another thing I want to bring up um, that I forgot to mention while I maybe was a little too hard on this match, I thought BJ Whitmer threw a really beautiful high knee, like a jumping high knee. I actually, like, freeze-framed it. It was so high in the air. It was, like, super athletic move, actually, from B.J. Whitmer. And when you talk about the the end, like, the chaotic nature of the end, I agree, like, that table spot sometimes can look not good. This one, maybe the way the table splintered and how hard they went through, looked really good. Like, it would justify a no-contest finish. And I actually went back and found kids... Before we had Twitter, before we had Facebook, we had LiveJournal, and wrestlers had <laughs> blogs. So I went – starting now, this is around the time Punk really started talking. Um, from time to time, we'll have some talk from Punk on his own matches because Punk would live journal some of his matches. So I actually have a quote from him talking about this match, and it goes into a little bit about the physical cost of this match. Punk wrote about this match. I worked B.J. Whitmer for the second time in a row, except this time nobody wins. I managed to German suplex him off the apron, and I think we're both lucky there was a table in the way of the floor. Don't get me wrong. I'm not happy I hit that table, but I think it could have been a lot worse. I was legit seeing stars just the way I was when I fractured my skull. Shit was spinning. I was a bit spooked by the whole thing. Much to my surprise, I didn't hear a single jackass yell anything ignorant as B.J. and I were held to the back. Hard to believe. So now I've been up up for way too long. My vertigo from my spall, skull fracture is coming back in spades, and my collarbone is bruised. It's so karaoke time. So Punk says this this actually hurt him and kind of re-aggravated for people that don't know. Punk um, fractured his skull in a match in 2002, I believe, against Reckless Youth. He did uh, like a turning blockbuster, and they bonked heads and it fractured Punk's skull and kept him where he had to stay in a dark room and just try and recover for a few weeks. He's talked about that before. So he's not that far removed from that. And I guess he was still at this point where even a year or two later, he could take occasionally he would say like moves would um, bring back those symptoms of like dizziness and woozy and headaches. So that's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. I, it's, you know, obviously this is a planned finish, but it could have easily not been, you know, based on how uh, how uh, they fell through. I actually freeze-framed after I read that quote just to see how Punk took the move. And while BJ takes it, like, clean through the table, Punk kind of catches the edge of the table. With his and hand, then, like, right? I'm not even – I forget. Like, I think it was more of his ribs, but it, 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 it looked like a violent – like fall for both of them. Like it didn't look like punk landed how I would want to look if I had to do that. Although, I mean, if I, if I had to do that, how I would like to fall is landing on a big pile of pillows and yeah. peeps. So mm. not a delicious peeps, fall. The, yeah. The marshmallow peeps, a delicious fall, one delicious fall to a finish in my stomach. <laughs> but, uh, 
that's uh, about that for that match. And it was interesting, too. It was rare in Ring of Honor at this point, or really ever during Gabe's tenure, to get a um, a no contest finish. And I think that probably tells you, one, it helps to set up that BJ Whitmer is going to have a continued cameo in the Raven Punk feud in a couple shows. And it, I think it also tells you that it's another sign of how much Gabe saw in BJ that he kind of protects him here. You know, he doesn't make, he makes it so BJ doesn't have to lose to Punk here. And Punk, who's in the middle of a push, doesn't have to lose either. It was, BJ, it was BJ's first singles match on a main card also, and not a four-way. <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those things where you can do these finishes that protect guys, these non-finishes, and it doesn't feel like a ripoff if you just do them occasionally. Like, I didn't feel cheated here. Maybe it's also because I wasn't, like, super pumped for a BJ Whitmer CM Punk match. But knowing the crowd's, like, chanting bullshit or anything like that, and, like, even Punk in that live journal, you know, he went out of his way to remark that, like, no one was chanting at us or, like, saying stupid things while we were doing this injury angle. So It was a super brutal ending. It wasn't like a, like a bunch of idiots ran in. Yeah, no one's mad about this. They After the match, Rob Feinstein comes out. I think Gabe comes out. Some of the wrestlers come out, including Samoa Joe. They check on the wrestlers, and then they even put up on the DVD a five-minutes-later graphic, and then we see them help to the back. So they try and sell. You know, these guys are really screwed up. They're hurt. This match can't go on. The only wrong note I found from that was... When the ref called for the bell, Gabe said, that's not supposed to happen, which felt a little like vaguely Russo. This isn't part of the script. Like oh, he does something should... else like that later, which I'll mention, but ugh, I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you just saw two guys fall off the apron through a table. Like when the match is stopped, my first reaction as a commentator, if this was real, wouldn't be, that's not supposed to happen. Like, it would be, oh, my God, I, like, of course this is happening. We got to check on them, not, oh, that's not a standard thing in one of these wrestling matches. No, and Gabe, but, yeah, G- Gabe, I don't know if he's even to this day lost that little bug that he has. Yeah, the best and worst of Gabe commentary on display so far on this show. Um, next up, it's Homicide taking on Christopher Daniels, a first-time match, at least in Ring of Honor. Daniels is scored to the ring by Allison Danger. Homicide defeats Christopher Daniels in 11 minutes, 20 seconds with what I would describe as a leg sweep cradle. Um, Matt, what did you think about, uh, you know, two of the bigger names of early ROH getting a first time match here? Yeah, I thought it was uh, not good. Um, I, uh, I, you know, first of all, the crowd heat was just not there from the start. And I don't know why, you know, you'd think these are both over acts, but the crowd just didn't care about this match. And, you know, they didn't do a lot to really change it. I don't think they were going full bore. Um, they, they, for, for whatever reason, they cut right from the entrance to Homicide applying a rear chin lock. So I don't know if something happened at the beginning that was weird. Uh, I honestly don't know. But the, there was there was awkwardness. Um, the crowd- I looked up the, the I looked up the, just to interrupt for a second, I looked up the time of the match based, based what, uh, how long the match took. And unless people just are having discrepancies, it seems like they cut maybe one minute off the match, like like maybe the first minute, which I thought was weird too. Yeah, it's random. Um, so something must have happened. But um, the crowd get, does briefly get into it when Homicide gets on the STF early, but then Danger distracts the ref while Daniels uh, is in the holds, and then Daniels takes over. And it just, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, you're usually better at pinpointing what went wrong in a match than I am. So I, I, it's hard for me to say exactly what it was. Um, 
But, you know, there's, it's just, it just felt like a bunch of stuff. I will say that Daniels hits the best moonsault ever at one point, and it's better than usual. Like, it hits so perfectly, and I thought that was cool. But um, there, was a, and there was another cool move where Daniels, like, Russian leg swept Homicide off the middle rope. Um, but then it just goes into finishes and stuff as Homicide blocks the Angels' wings. Daniels escapes the cop killer. Um, then Homicide hit the Lariat for two. Then they do the series of reversals. Daniels finally hits the Angels' wings, but the cover is delayed, so it only gets two. Then they do these awkward reversals on the mat, which just don't work right. And then Homicide gets that pinning combo, the like the leg sweep cradle, forward cradle thing for the for the three. It just it just didn't click. I don't know. And one thing that annoyed me, um, well, actually, it didn't annoy me. It very much amused me. Um, Gabe at the end of the match was like, "Oh, this just shows you. I love. It's great that an ROH a match could just end in any time because that's what it's like in real sports." And I was like, "Wait a second. <laughs> like, what are you? You're not supposed to literally say it's fake on the commentary." Um, but then I, I guess if you don't mind, I'll talk about the angle afterward because I think that's yeah, go ahead. the most noteworthy part of the match, which is um, so they they sort of have a stare down and they almost teasing like, "Is Daniel's going to shake Homicide's hand?" But then the group comes up from behind. Samoa Joe, uh, C.W. Anderson, they come up from behind and they're about to attack Homicide. And Daniels, like, valiantly shoves Homicide out of the way and takes the attack by the group. And the group kind of takes out both of them. Joe chokes out Homicide. And uh, Mafia gets in the ring and tries to fight and fights off Joe, first of all. And, but, you know, Homicide's already, you know, out on the ground. Daniels fights off Anderson, and then Mafia and Daniels, they square off in the center, and Daniels rips Mafia's shirt off to reveal a Prophecy t-shirt. And, um, and Daniels says Mafia is the newest member of the Prophecy. They do a little symbol together. I did think the Prophecy t-shirt thing was kind of funny, because up until that moment, it's not like we'd really seen the Prophecy t-shirt on camera. <laughs> it's not like this iconic thing like the NWO shirt or the DX <laughs> shirt. You know, it's just like, wait, what is he wearing? What is he wearing? A t-shirt? Okay. But, People are getting their opera glasses and squinting like, what's that say? Oh, the prophecy. Yeah. Uh, but, they, but they do the symbol. And then so uh, Mafia drapes the, the Hit Squad shirt over Homicide's face. And so then they walk to the back. So Homicide wakes up and he's like, what's this? Like, he's like, what's going on? And the referee's like, oh, yeah, Mafia joined the prophecy. And Homicide's like, no, you're lying. And, <laughs> and it, it was kinda, it's kind of funny because obviously it was, it, was, it was kind of a cool moment. The the sting is kind of taken out of it because, like, the prophecy aren't presented as the ultimate heels in this segment, so it doesn't feel like a full heel turn. It just feels like he aligned himself with a different group because you know Daniel saves, um, you know he saves Homicide right before that moment, and then Mafia legitimately does save Homicide from the group, and the group were sort of the heels there. So obviously it is a heel turn for Mafia, but it doesn't really have that oomph of a betrayal if that makes sense i'll go to the angle first and then work my way back to my thoughts on the match but um i actually really like the angle um i like i liked it too but it was good i I agree with your points but one thing i really before i get into the one thing i really liked about it was how gabe set this up where this match is like the perfect match to do this angle on because and gabe points this out on commentary you know when mafia runs in the ring to um, make the save against the group, you know, you think he's going to be saving Homicide because Homicide's his friend, you know, like, and that's been established. And instead, you know, w- you know, he and Daniels bump into each other back to back after they fought up the group and then turn around and have that quick moment of tension. And I do like that 
rather than just Mafia running in and helping Daniels in a random match where you're like, well, why is he helping Daniels? Oh, he must be with the group. I like that they picked the one match where it's like fans might assume, oh, no, he's helping his friend Homicide and Daniels just happens to be there too. And it's like, no, 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 he's not helping Homicide. He's helping Daniels because he's part of, let me squint at that shirt. Oh, the prophecy. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's that. I like that. I, I, I laughed at the, uh, at homicide afterwards having to have have it explained to him and he's like no man no like that can't be it um the best thing though was at um <laughs> when when daniels rips the the uh the the hit squad t-shirt off um mafia to reveal the prophecy one underneath at first gabe goes he must have put on the wrong shirt. And I thought, yes, he put on two shirts that day. One of them by accident. He was like, oh, I'm going to put a prophecy shirt on. Like I got it for free somewhere. And then he forgot he was wearing that shirt. He was like, I need to put a shirt on today. And then, like, I, I love that Gabe trying to fake, like, like a Gabe can't believe, oh, it must be a mistake. Say it ain't so, Mafia. And uh, I, I thought that was really funny. But, yeah, that's the other thing is, what you said though is absolutely correct that they're starting to blur the lines in this heel versus heel feud where it it doesn't it loses a bit of that when mafia joins a little that of oh like how could he do it to us like he he gets a bit of that later with the promos but even even when you talk about that moment of you know it, the way they shoot the angle it looks like Christopher Daniels actually might have sh- shaken um homicide's hand before the run because like he's looking at the hand and, you know, you think it'll probably be the usual, oh, Daniels will consider it and then just, you know, kick the guy in the balls or, like, mock them. But, like, when the group comes, Daniels shoves Homicide out of the way to protect him. So, again, it's like painting Daniels as kind of a baby face. Right. And – but I guess, you know, months ago in The Observer, Dave kind of hinted that, like, that was the original idea of this. It, did, it doesn't turn out that way. But the original idea of the group versus prophecy feud was to turn – Christopher Daniels into a baby face. That's not what we get. But when you see moments like that, you can see how they might have fit in with that kind of plan. Right. And it's, it's the, the whole group thing is weird because it's like, uh, you know, clearly they have Carino being the ultimate bad guy in this situation because he's fighting homicide. And so Daniels is sympathetic. But then also in the group is Samoa Joe, who is definitely not portrayed like a heel. You know, he's portrayed like he's like this super honorable champion. So it's and and the and the prophecy still doesn't shake hands. So it's it's definitely weird. Like I, I get that they're trying to do something different, but it does get a little bit confusing on who's uh, where where our allegiances are supposed to lie in this whole thing. Indie wrestling now is a lot more vague about heels and, and faces. I think to its detriment. And mm-hmm. I, I think wrestling in general, like WWE, even is more vague sometimes on that. But back then, heels and faces were more well defined. And yeah, it, it, it stands out that it's the the waters as this feud continues are getting like more muddy about who's who are we supposed to cheer? Are we supposed to cheer for anybody in this feud? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it just it's getting a, kind of weird in that sense. And yeah, it does affect the mafia turn. But going to the Homicide Daniels match itself, I guess the first thing is maybe the most notable thing about this match is I think this is the first time that we ever get the the appearance in Ring of Honor of Homicide's classic theme, which is The Truth by Beanie Siegel. Okay, well, it doesn't actually, have to so kill let me, Bill. Yeah, so let okay. me actually um, correct that a little bit. So he had two themes that had that same beat. And... Um, and the original one was not the truth. So this was a different song. And actually, and he uses that until 
I think he turns heel in 2004. And I can't remember what the Homicide's original theme is called, but it has that same beat as the truth. It's almost like a mix. Um, it's hard to explain, but when you when you hear the actual the song "The Truth," like when he gets it, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. It's different, but it's the sa- it's that same beat. Someone who knows more about this stuff will will be able to explain yeah. it better. But well, believe it or not, two like nerdy white guys are not the experts on beating Seagull. Yeah. But you no, know, that's really song. interesting. That's I didn't saying. know. I I yeah. did not know that. So thank yeah. you for actually. I yeah. did not know that. It also doesn't have the Kill Bill like opening right. little bit of audio yet, of course, because Kill Bill hadn't come out in theaters until later in 2003. So can't do that yet either. But for the match itself, the thing I wrote in my notes for this was awkward. And I think what really stood what, what watching this match, what it made me feel like was. These two, it, it felt like a match where, like, the CM Punk match just felt like it was sloppy because CM Punk could be a sloppy worker. He was not the na- most naturally, like, physically gifted guy. He had a lot of positive attributes as a wrestler, like, it, but it, the physical element didn't come easy to him. Christopher Daniels is, I think, one of the most graceful, like, smooth wrestlers in independent or maybe all of wrestling. And this just felt like Homicide and Christopher Daniels were not on the same page a bunch of the time. There there are moments like – I think the most glaring example was at one point um, Daniels throws a kick to Homicide, but he throws his leg kind of to the side clearly for Homicide to catch the kick. And Homicide just completely doesn't know what to do. Like he just ignores it. So Daniels – I think he says a word to Homicide and like he does the kick immediately again. And this time Homicide catches it and they do like – whatever was next, the Enzigiri spot or something. And so those are the kind of things where they stand out even more in a Daniels match because he's just so smooth. You never see stuff like that. And there was a few spots in this match where it just felt like one guy didn't know what the other guy was doing. That's that. Maybe I'm wrong. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah. Like they just weren't quite on the same page. It wasn't like, Oh, they're just not good wrestlers. It's like, no, these are two wrestlers that just aren't clicking that maybe aren't, calling each other's spots quite correctly and they don't know where the other guy wants them to be or wants wants them to do and again it it, it stands out more because it's christopher daniels and you expect more and going to what you said about how it's just a bunch of spots i think that's the other thing if it if it was a match with a story that just happened to have some weird awkward spots i could give it fair pretty high marks still but this was a match that was just as you said, a bunch of stuff. So when a lot of that stuff feels awkward, then it's like, well, there's nothing else for me to get enjoyment from. Like, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, that makes sense to me, actually. Um, by the way, looking up stuff on the theme, I guess there's like there's the truth, and then there's the truth Ironside remix, and maybe that's the difference between the two songs. Uh, uh, after the show, I'm going to dive deep into this research. Okay, Matt. Who knows these days with these kids and their hip and their hop and their samples? Like, yeah. you know, that, that clip could come from a million things. It's, it's true. It's so confusing. I just want to listen to my bluegrass and relax. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, this match, it was not like, oh, my God, my eyes are bleeding terrible. It was just, uh, I would say, very low average from two guys you would expect better from. Yeah, it just two didn't guys work. That are, it just didn't yeah, work. And it, it, it seemed like, again, two guys who, when I look at them, when I think, Daniels and Homicide, I think very competent professionals. Like, I, it, it was bad in a way I wouldn't expect from these two. I, I would expect, you know, I, I it's not like I was expecting, oh, an amazing match for sure, but I was definitely not expecting it to be kind of a weird mess at a couple points. But 
you know, it happens. And going, I think that mostly covers this whole segment, except for one part that I thought was funny near the very end. Obviously, Ring of Honor always pushing their top five rankings. If you're wondering if it got through to the fans, it got through to one fan because as Mafia and Daniels are leaving down the aisle to go back to the curtain after this segment, um, you hear one fan very loudly say, you're not even in the top five, Daniels. You suck. (laughs) And Daniels and Mafia then jaw at him extended. And I love the idea that that's how one fan wanted to raz Daniels was like, no, I'm going to do it by the book. I'm going to tell him, you know, you're not in the top five, Daniels. Daniels, you know, I appreciate, I I appreciate that actually. Yeah. yeah, That's a good fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so next we go to intermission where we're backstage with Gary, Michael Capetta, BJ Whitmer, and a weird slubby looking guy in plain clothes who's kind of smirking who is supposed to be a doctor. Uh, Gary says that intermission, normally everyone is all hyped up, but the bump that BJ took was one of the scariest things Gary had ever seen. BJ is acting like he can't remember the match. CM Punk comes by, he acts all concerned and keeps talking about how the fans love BJ, but he reveals his true colors. He's being kind of a shitty person because he's like, next time, you know, Punk goes to BJ, like, next time, just go a little easy. I'll go a little easier on you so you don't quit on me like that. Yeah, make, make um, it seem like he, like, he gave up in the match as, a, like, as opposed to it just being a no contest. Yeah, and, and he, he, he's acting like, you know, like he's trying to be nice, but he's being a real complete dick um punk and the doctor agree that bj needs to go to the hospital and punk keeps being smug and fake he tells bj he has a lot of heart in a real condescending way um gary who had been off camera for just maybe five seconds then says the producers have told him something is going on so he and the cameraman run through the door into the hallway where immediately we see julius smokes and louis ramos beating up two dudes smoke cuts a quick julius smokes promo um, I, I do, I do want to add one thing about the punk thing during the match. Um, Gabe was like, well, punk does have honor. That's one thing you could say about him, but you see him being sneaky and cheating and stuff all the time. So he really doesn't like, you know, they, they want to like have these, like these heels, but they actually believe in honor, but punk isn't really very honorable in this character. He pulled out a table in this match. And then a couple shows ago against Raven, he put a woman through a table. Like yeah. Is is that honorable? I mean, I mean, yeah. clearly based on how they book it is. Yeah. Oh, it's very honorable by Ring of Honor standards. Yes. Yeah. But um, next we get clips of an Alexis Lurie versus Ariel match, which literally probably like thirty seconds of clips. I don't know how long this match was. There seemed the moves looked fine, but in, at least in one of the clips, there seemed to be some jeers. So I don't know if this was actually a train wreck or something. It's well, it was it was a very short match. I think you know because they they announced the time at the end, so they didn't clip it that much. But it's just it's just annoying that. I, I don't get what they're trying to do with Alexis Lurie. Like, I don't get how they're trying to present her or what they want us to think of her because it's, you know, they don't actually show her being a good, I mean, I've said this a lot, but they don't show her being a good, talented wrestler. So what are they trying to do? Again, going back to what I said earlier in the show, Gabe really only books women one or two ways. And really the main way he books women is, that they are there to manage their friends and to attack anyone else that's managing the other side in case they interfere. That's or to help their if they're a heel to help their men cheat. And that's all they do. And occasionally they'll be allowed to do a moonsault and occasionally they'll be allowed to wrestle somebody else, but for a very short time. And it's just it continues to be weird that 
I mean, I realize women's wrestling in America at this point was not what it would become, but it's funny to see on one hand Ring of Honor wants to act like they're so progressive and so progressive to women, like, oh, she can show she's a good athlete here. But then the other half of the time and stuff like this, they're treating them just the way WWE would, like a one-minute match. And in I WWE, mean, Trish Stratus was already having like good matches sometimes. Like This was shortly after WrestleMania uh, 19, and they had a pretty decent three-way match at WrestleMania 19 with the women. So definitely WWE is already doing better with their women than ROH is at this point. Yeah, it, it, it's a weird spot for a company that loves to push how cutting-edge they are. There's this one really... like behind the, the the WWE spot that's, like, glaring in their product. But, I mean, that's just always been a weak point for uh, gay-booked Ring of Honor or gay-booked indies. I don't think he's of the mind of he's serious about booking women's wrestling, and that's that's him. So next we have a non-title match. Samoa Joe defeats Hot Stuff Hernandez in 6 minutes, 40 seconds with a triangle choke. This was something that was also, to me, I mean, I guess maybe the theme of the show, or some of the matches, kind of disappointing, because after seeing Hot Stuff look so good on the other, the other last show, kind of hyped up to rewatch this, and then six minutes, and the first two minutes of this are just Samoa Joe gingerly going after Hot Stuff's arm, so it seems weird, like, when you only have six minutes to begin with, why you would spend a third of the match just doing arm work that didn't go anywhere that like, you know, that's the kind of stuff you would do if you were knowing you were going 25 minutes and needed to space yourself. Then after that, um, hot stuff does kind of get to do his greatest hits. He does big dive over the floor. I mean, over the ropes to the floor, you know, he gets to hit heart Joe hard does his nice, really good looking clothesline. He gets, he gets to do his big spots and looks good doing them. But, then after that, Joe makes his comeback, does the triangle choke, not even a, that grave a triangle choke, and gets the win. Joe is still trying to establish his choke at this point. One thing that I thought was kind of a mistake was doing the triangle choke, which Gabe uses to say, like, oh, Joe can choke you anywhere from any situation or whatever. But to me, when you're trying to get one move over, it's hard enough to get just the rear naked choke over adding extra chokes, I think when you're still trying to get it over, just confuses things. Like I would just have them do the same choke over and over again. Of course that's, that's complaining about something that I don't need to complain about because the choke would get over, but just, it's not something that Joe would do a lot, the triangle choke, but he throws it out here. Um, Matt, did you, do you feel any different about this? Am I being too hard on this? I mean, I I think they got the crowd going with, with, with Hernandez's big moves, which is good. But the big thing I noticed is Hernandez got so tired by the end. He was he just looked like he was about to pass out by the last like minute or so. And so I think that's maybe the thing that stopped him in his tracks in ROH. He just didn't have the stamina to work a match like that. You know, he could do his big moves, but then he ran out of gas. And that's the main thing I noticed. But his big moves did look really good. His chops looked good. Um, but there wasn't much to the match. There wasn't really anything to say about it beyond that. You know, but I but it was very noticeable how tired Hernandez looked at the end. That, that's a great point. I forgot that, but yeah, I did notice at one point he was huffing and puffing at the end of a match, and maybe that's what we were wondering earlier. What's on earlier shows? What held him back? Maybe that's one thing. Maybe that's why he's best remembered as half of a tag team. Is maybe he's just more suited for get getting in, doing his big spots, getting out, 
maybe he just doesn't have the stamina. He's carrying a lot of weight. So he's a big guy. Um, I feel like if you watch this match, um, Hernandez doesn't get any more or less over than he would have uh, if you had seen his impressive performance in the tag match on the last show on Night of Champions. Like if you watch this match, it doesn't hurt Hernandez or or help him. He, he, he looks exactly the same, which is, oh, he's a big guy who can do some impressive things. I'd like to see him in a longer match. And although, again, after you see him huff and puff, maybe you wouldn't want to see him in a longer match. Right. But um, after the match, Joe stays in the ring and sits down in a chair. Gary Michael Capetta climbs in and awkwardly tries to conduct the interview on his knees so he can be at eye level with Joe. I think a crowd member, like someone in the crowd, even like jokes about it and Joe kind of like smirks at it and Gary gets back on his feet. Like it was just a really odd visual. Unnecessary I- homophobia by the crowd, but it is a wrestling crowd in 2003. So I'm <laughs> can't, you know, I always have to call it out, but I, I, I understand, I guess. Um, Joe basically says that the crowd deserves to see the Ring of Honor title defended tonight because what he just had was a non-title match and that the competitors of tonight's three-way that are about to happen, he wants them to come out now so that he can turn their um, three-way into a four-way and he says it's not a four-way title match. He says if anyone pins him they'll have the title. Yeah, so, so that's to, dire- to, to the crowd, they're like, oh, it's a title match. But then the commentators make sure to be like, well, I mean, it's probably not an official title match. But, you know, if you're in the live crowd, you're like, you can have the belt. What else are they taking that as? Yeah. Um, and this is another part of thing that bugs me a little bit, which is the whole the group books themselves stuff. Like, we forget sometimes Joe was part of the group. And the whole part of Carino's group was – they book themselves like, you know, Gabe keeps talking here, you know, again about, you know, we don't want CW Anderson here and we would never book Jack Victory and all this stuff. But like the group books themselves and this is kind of a carryover to that, which is, oh, you know, Joe wants to put himself in a match. He can because the group books themselves, which is such a weird, oh, we're powerless to stop these guys thing. Yeah, but like, what does it even mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's vague and weird, but I mean, again, a small minor thing. It's just it's just one of those weird things from a, a stable that was never really successful. But our next match is a Ring of Honor kind of sort of title match. Four-corner survival match. Samoa Joe defeats Colt Cabana, Matt Stryker, and Tom Carter, the former reckless youth, in 13 minutes, 20 seconds, when he makes Cabana tap to the, to the rear naked choke. After um, Reckless Youth splashed Colt while he was, like, getting choked by Joe, Joe just slaps the choke right back on. Colt taps out. Um, Matt, we've seen quite a few four-ways on recent shows. What did you think about this one? Well, what I, th- I thought was this was different than the other four-ways. Um, first of all, they make a big point early to say that Joe is super different from, the, from Xavier as champion because he's going out of his way to be a fighting champion, and Xavier tried to avoid defending the belt as much as possible, but then Gabe's like, but I don't know if the belt is on the line. There's just it was very, <laughs> a lot of vagueness to this booking, um, I have to admit. But... Um, but I do like, um, but I did like how like the match started. First of all, it was the debut of Colt coming out to Copacabana. That's another new entrance thing, and the crowd was like, "What the hell is this all about?" So I mean, the announcement and in a tuxedo that. T-shirt, That's and right. in a tuxedo T-shirt. So this was the first time like Colt's been wacky on some backstage segments, but this felt like the first time that like Colt was embracing in Ring of Honor, like making that part of his in-ring wrestling identity. Like, That's right, coming yeah. out with that kind of goofy gear. Right, they're they're letting some of these characters kind of become themselves at this point. Um, but 
you know, Joe shakes all three of these guys' hand, and then he, like, he kind of slaps um, uh, Tom Carter. It's actually interesting, because Tom Carter, I thought, looked pretty good here. And I'm curious as to why he didn't do better in, in ROH. He was in super shape, um, you know, way better than he was as Reckless Youth. So, I, uh, you know, it's curious because he, he seemed to do pretty well. And, and you know, Stryker was holding his own. You could tell that Gabe really liked Stryker, at least at this point. Um, but they start out with, like, everybody doing their move on Joe. And I thought that was a really good deal. Like, the crowd really got into that. And then it sort of settled down into more of a, um, into more of a regular match. You know, they had... They, they really a decent amount of emphasis on Tom Carter, honestly, because they had uh, Cabana tying up Carter's arms and like daring him to slap him, which is kind of funny. And then Joe just came in and slapped him instead. I like that spot <laughs> a lot. Um, and then Carter returns the favor by tying Cabana up in like a lasso, and Joe keeps and Joe keeps breaking up all the holds. Like that's one thing. So Joe keeps breaking it up. It is interesting why. Um, you know, that they wouldn't just keep trying to get Joe back in the ring because it's not like they enforce the tags here. But um, so Cabana goes for a suplex on Stryker, but Carter dropkicks Cabana's leg. So they do a pretty good job with, like, getting everybody involved. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, again, they if you care about legal man stuff, which I don't know how you could and actually ever like a four-corner <laughs> survival match, but if you do, I guess it could drive you nuts. But if you don't, I think it's pretty good when they get everybody involved. Um, and then Carter takes over on Stryker. Um, they get kind of a, um, gets like this, like back an arm stretch on Stryker, uh, but then Stryker takes control and he works over Carter's left arm. Uh, Carter comes off the top with a knee to Stryker's head, but Cabana breaks up that pin. Stryker backdrops Cabana to the floor and does a plancha onto him. And then Joe goes for a dive, but Carter just, you know, stops him with like a big boot to the face and a sunset flip for two. I thought that boot to the face was really well-timed and really good. Um, Carter misses a, uh, a lariat and Joe hits an STO and Stryker breaks that up and Carter hits a pretty, what I think is a pretty cool Death Valley driver on Samoa Joe. Cabana breaks that up. Uh, Cabana hits a neck breaker on his knee on Stryker, like kind of like that, you know, like drop down, like backbreaker style, but on the neck. Um, then Carter goes for a top rope Rana, but a Cabana catches him and goes for a power bomb, but Carter reverses into like this top rope DDT. I thought that was a really cool spot, and Gabe was, like, very impressed by it. Like, you could always tell on commentary when Gabe doesn't remember a spot, and he's like, oh, my God, that was cool. Um, <laughs> and Joe breaks that up. And Joe clears the ring and just kicks Cabana's head. Uh, Cabana blocks the island driver, but he gets the choke, and like you said, Carter hits the frog splash, but Joe just kind of puts the puts the choke right back on and uh, and gets it. I say so it wasn't like a super smooth match, but I thought it was I thought it was entertaining. Like I I, I genuinely enjoyed it. I um you know, I, I could see I could see anyone having both opinions on this kind of match cuz it's not for everybody. But I thought with what they with what they had, I I, I was I was fairly uh, I was fairly impressed and I was definitely entertained by it. After a few matches where I was like, "Oh, that's disappointing. That was average." I thought this was like better than average. This I get I agree. This was entertaining. I feel like there's like two sides to this match. Like the action I thought was entertaining. It was, it was good and enjoyable, but you kind of have to turn your mind off for some of the reasons you mentioned earlier. Like the idea of like, I feel like in the sense of making it such a weird specific, you have to pin Joe to win the title kind of threw off the vibe of the match a little bit, because as you said, like I kept thinking, if you can only win the title by pinning Joe, why wouldn't you constantly be like throwing your opponent into Joe's corner and hoping they tag out? Like, wouldn't you want to be trying to wrestle Joe all the time because he's the only guy you can get the title from? 
Like, and yet most of this match, like the start of the match is Joe's heavily involved because everyone's hitting their moves on him. And the end of the match, of course, Joe is involved, but most like the entire body of the match is mostly Joe on the apron, watching the match and occasionally breaking up a pin. And again, it's kind of weird, especially because Joe was so forceful about, you know, you know, you get fans deserve more. I'm going to put myself in this match, make the title match. And yet, you know, most of the match is him watching it. And that that felt a little bit off. And again, it felt a little more off that the guys weren't going after Joe Moore to try and win the title. But again, the work itself is good. And another thing that was a little weird like that was because Tom Carter and Matt Stryker and Colt Cabana all like to take it to the mat, there was a lot of mat work in this match. And it was good mat work. I liked what you described where um, you know, Tom Carter gets tied up by Colt and taunted, and then he ties up Colt later. Like he one up some. I I like stuff like that. But the problem with these four ways, one of the ways it limits wrestling is I feel like you can't really do a four-way with a lot of mat work and submission work because there's always two, at least two guys on the apron unless guys have been knocked off. Like, why would I ever not break up a submission? It, it just – and sometimes in this match they break up. Sometimes they don't. But it feels like if I was wrestling a four-way, it would be real bad strategy to do a lot of submission work and mat work because I'm always vulnerable to getting beaten up. I'm always going to have the hole broken up because submissions you can see coming in a way sometimes that you can't see pinfalls. So that part felt weird, but it's work been, itself. Oh, sorry. Say, it's very hard to have a logical four corners match because of all those things. Like, I don't know if there's ever been a four corners match that doesn't have some moments where you're like, Hey, wait a second. Um, you know, maybe there are, but it's kind of hard to think about it. Um, you know, like wrestling, you know, when it's a one-on-one situation, there's like a logic to it, an eternal logic that you can apply. When you start kind of making it convoluted, the logic is much harder to apply because real competitions don't work that way. Um, you know, that's like sometimes I can be a sucker for convoluted stuff, but you know, when it's just a basic thing like right like this, it does stand out as like this doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, and and Ring of Honor a lot of the times does try and emphasize logic, so. When stuff doesn't quite make sense, it stands out more. And I just think that four ways have so many things, little things like that, that limit matches where compared to scrambles, no one's expecting logic from a scramble. So anything that breaks like up the logic, you're just like, oh, I'm just here to see big spots. But four ways don't have that identity. They're not being sold as like, when you see a four way, you're going to see the craziest action ever. And there's not going to be any psychology. So sorry, smart marks. Like it's, (laughs) it's nothing like that. Like Gabe never sells it that way. It's just a four way wrestling match, but it has these weird limitations that sometimes come up like in a match like this, but the action was good. I agree. Tom Carter looked good. That top rope DDT was a great spot. I was surprised to see a spot that big, like, wow, top rope DDT. And, um, I don't know why he didn't make it more. I think I don't quote me on this. I haven't done research on this, but I remember back when I used to watch Chikara, which was a long time ago, like Tom Carter seemed to be the kind of guy that would come out like once in a blue moon when he felt like it, like maybe he might've been a little flaky. Even mm-hmm. I get the impression that he was a guy that like he, it, the passion wasn't always there or just because of his job or whatever. Like he wasn't the guy that was going to devote like every weekend at a certain point in his career. That makes so sense. That, that I could see that holding him back. Like maybe you're not good. Like maybe Tom Carr's the kind of guy that you could fall up in. Like when he felt like it, he'd do a show here or there, but maybe he wasn't always at every stage of his life, like fighting 
you know, to make something of himself in wrestling. So I could see that being an element of it. He seems like catnip because Gabe really does have a spot, soft spot for these, you know, mat based wrestlers. And Tom Carter has the, has a body at this point. He, he's very good on the mat. He even has a name is kind of like one of the first generation of us indie guys before the big first indie boom. Um, and he wasn't yeah, that, he wasn't that old at this point. Yeah, I, I don't think he was. So is, that's interesting, but Above average match, I did like at the end where Gabe sells the finish of, you know, Gabe put, I mean, um, Joe puts the choke right back on and Gabe says something to the effect of like, if, you know, the frog splash of Tom Carter didn't, you know, get Joe to stop the choke, you know, what can? So I like that way of trying to sell Gabe, um, I keep saying, confusing someone with Joe and Gabe Sapolsky, which is weird, but um, selling, I like that they're selling even the choke that another way, like, not only is the choke a devastating finisher, but it's going to be really hard to ever break Samoa Joe's choke. Yeah, and Tom Carter was like 28, 29 at this point. So could have had plenty of years after. Yeah, he could have had, a, a you know, another decade at least. So yeah. um, after the – oh, and I guess I should, I, I'll also bring up Matt Stryker, I thought, had actually good chemistry with Samoa Joe in their few interactions. Like a lot of wrestlers, when they get smacked around by Joe, they just take it because – I mean, that's just what you do. But Stryker is a pretty fiery individual and like he would respond to Joe's attacks by getting, you know, like pissed and heated up. And it's weird. Like Matt Stryker is a guy, he has this weird combination where he has really good fire. I find when I watch his matches, but I wouldn't say he has charisma. Like, and I don't know if I can say that about many wrestlers. Like he's not a charismatic guy, but he does have good fire, which is a sign. Uh, I, I mean, a form of charisma, but, like, the rest of the match, it'll be, like, dry mat work, and he's good at it. But then, like, when he gets – there'll be spots in his matches where he, someone will, like, smack him or something, and he'll get that real pissed, heated stuff, and I'll be into it. But it's not like he's very charismatic apart from, like, that one emotional note. But it's an interesting combination, and as you said, Gabe obviously has a pretty big Matt Striker crush, except for the unibrow at this point. So – yeah, but you know, it's one of those things. He teases him about the unibrow because he really likes it. <laughs> you see, God, why won't he ask me for a date first? <laughs> but um, after the match, Joe gets on the mic again, does just a quick little bit of work. He puts over the title, puts over Ring of Honor. And as you mentioned, Gabe really emphasizes the difference between Xavier and Joe. The last champ, Xavier, always avoided defending the title. Joe's like jumping at the chance to defend it. So. I like that too. That he's trying. To, that Gabe's trying to already. Even though obviously the towering became much bigger than anyone, Gabe and Joe included, thought it would be. I like that Gabe is trying to push this towering even right from the start as having a unique identity. Like Joe's a guy who's desperate to defend this title. So it, it's an inter, it's a nice direction to go in. Next, we uh, get a brief clip of David Young and Iceberg brawling outside the building. David Young smashes uh, Iceberg into a chain link fence. This was obviously recorded during Paul London's entrance for the next match because we can hear Paul London's music playing. And not much to say about that. Can I just say, and I'll say more later, but I hated this. Okay. Um, oh, okay. But we have something next. Oh, well, do you want to say more right now or – or do you want to wait? Nah, for it's, like, fi- it's, it's fine. I'll save it. I'll save it. Okay. But we have something I think you'll have a few things to say about. And that's our semi-main event. 
a two out of three falls match, and this was a stipulation apparently voted on online. I couldn't figure out what were the other stipulations up for vote, but apparently it's two out of three falls because the fans voted for the specific stipulation. And that's the American Dragon, Brian Danielson, taking on Paul London. Paul London beats Brian Danielson in 39-33. I saw another thing say it was slightly over 40, but uh, it's within a minute of this. Two falls to one. Paul London beats Danielson in 2031 when he pinned him after um, Danielson tried to back superplex him. London shifted his weight, fell on him. That was the first fall by pinfall. Second fall was Danielson beating Amer- Paul London. Was Danielson beating Paul London in 26-24 via submission with a single leg Boston Crab. And then the final fall and the win was Paul London pinning Brian Danielson in 39-39 after hitting a shooting star press. Matt, I've been looking forward to this match for a long time. A lot of big expectations for this match. This is a very fondly remembered match. What did you think watching it back again here in 2018? Well, this is, you know, one of those matches that's, Still mentioned on the you know relatively short list of what's the greatest match in ROH history. This match is very much still in the conversation. Fifteen years later, um, you know, and it's, I think it deserves to be in the conversation. I um, I would put this, I would say, as the second best match that we've watched so far. Um, you know, and my favorite match is one that you didn't even think was the best match of last year. So I could you know I'm very curious to see where you come down on this, but. The, uh, you know, with my, my best match is still Danielson versus uh, Loki from the second ROH show, the Round Robin Challenge. But let's talk about this match. So for one thing they do, they show the entire entrances, which is unusual. Um, and both guys get this welcome back chant because they're, um, you know, because they've both been gone for a couple of shows, really a couple of months, because it's been a while since that, since that first anniversary show. Um, and, you know, and, they, and you could tell very early on they're going long. You know, they're, they're, it's slow. It's deliberate. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very, the match is just, it's just very noticeable in terms of atmosphere, in terms of execution, because even the good matches on this show up until this point were indie matches, you know? And these, these two guys had a match where, you know, if they had 15 years more experience, if it was the Brian Danielson of today and Paul London, you know, of today without any gaps in their, uh, like in his experience, like he's, like he's had, I don't know that they could have done better. Um, they, you know, they just do all the little things to the point where, um, Gabe says very cerebral at one point, which I thought was <laughs> funny. Um, like, you know, they, and like little stuff, like they, they have a slap fest and then Danielson offers his hand and then just like pulls it away and, you know, brushes his hair with it. Like, <laughs> mind games. You know, Danielson, I, I know I say it all the time. The guy always had personality. I don't, I can't understand how anyone ever thought he was, he was dry, but whatever. I posted, uh, I posted a quick clip of that too. And I, I said something like to the effect of like, screw you, anyone who thinks Brian Danielson didn't have personality back then. Like, cause again, it was just such a, like, it's not just that the, like the fake out on the hand slap, but just look at like the smug grin Danielson has. Like he's just, he's so charismatic in those little moments. It's just, maybe he's not good yet at playing like to a big crowd, but he was an indie wrestler. But if you like watching on home video, like his facial expressions, his reactions to things, his mannerisms. He was a charismatic guy even then. Yeah, I agree. Um, very much so. As far as the work, um, you know, the early stuff is Danielson getting the best of London on the mat. Um, but London's, you know, holding his own. It's not like he's being dominated. Danielson just sort of like sets the pace. 
Um, Gabe is noting on commentary how snugly everything is being put on. You know, they have a collar and elbow tie-up at the very beginning that's just, like, super intense, and Gabe's like, you know, that's how you put on a collar and elbow tie-up. And, I, you know, I can't disagree. Like, that's, it, was, it was a notably good collar and elbow tie-up. And, you know, just, like, the simple, like, the headlocks, the way Danielson is, you know, digging his hands in, and, you know, just all the little things, you know. Um, and, you know, he hits a, a, a boot to the face after London gets out of a head scissors, which I thought was real. That was, like, kind of the first big shot of the match, you know. He has the head scissors on London. London kind of works his way out. And Danielson just like stomps him in the face, like forward. It was looked pretty pretty badass. Um, then uh, London keeps going back to this headlock. Like there's a, there's a sequence where London just keeps working a headlock and getting back to it. And and but then um, the Dragon takes back over with like strikes and high impact stuff. He smacks London while he has him in an abdominal stretch and uh, like on the side. And so London calls him a bitch. So Dragon you know just beats the crap out of him even more. Um, and so, um, and then you know, he sort of seems like Dragon's starting to work on the lower back, but he never totally focuses on it. Um, London then tries to block another abdominal stretch by clasping his hands. And you really start to notice the way they're working this match, which is every single move, every single hold is a struggle. Like, that's like kind of one of the big themes. Like, they fight for everything that they get on the other guy, which is not something you see very often ever in any kind of match. You know, sometimes the New Japan matches or all Japan matches would do that, like, for the big moves. But this is, like, every single move. It doesn't come easy, which is which is pretty cool. Then we get, at this point, the debut of the dueling chance. The let's go Dragon, let's go London. I think this is the first time that ever happened. I was thinking that, um, I was going to ask you, I feel like we, not, not only is this match, like, um, <laughs> historical for being a really great match i think this match we might have secretly found out is like where the chanting culture at least in ring of honor really started because there was a like 400 percent more chance in this match than in, like in most ring of honor matches up to this point i agree and this is the biggest you know the biggest legacy is this chant because this this one is like you know you still get that the dueling chance and the yeah. crowd and the crowd did it but this was like a much louder and in, more intense version of the usual dueling chance to the point where the crowd actually started applauding themselves afterward yeah and, th- and then I chanting could, roh yeah i could see some people like people hate that when the crowd like puts themselves over but it, it was I, at that time it felt like they were surprised they did it like it was that novel that yeah it was like ho- and it was legit like there was half of that crowd that really wanted danielson to win and there was half of that crowd that really wanted paul london to win like these are two of the most beloved guys in the company it wasn't like oh we're we're both chanting for both these guys it felt more like no like this crowd's really split on who they want to win this match, and they're passionately like voicing their, you know, they're cheering for their for their band, their their pick. Yeah, I agree, and I, that was it was very organic, so I didn't mind it at all. Um, you know, then as, as the, uh, London is you know starting to come back, it's a big clothesline, gets a good near fall on the springboard sunset flip, um, head scissors Danielson to the floor. There's a springboard in Seguri with Dragon on the apron. I thought that was pretty awesome. And then uh, Dragon hits a big tope, um, and they um, then a Dragon does like this diving headbutt all the way across the ring for two. Uh, gets a small package for a very convincing near fall. Like I feel like you know for a second I thought that was actually it. It's funny because some of the biggest near falls in the match actually took place in the first fall. You know, it wasn't a very near fall oriented match, but there were some Not really good ones here. Um, London did this roll-up like Homicide did to win his match against Daniels. Uh, he got for two for that. 
Dragon does a bridging German suplex, which gets two in like nine tenth. It's like like London kicked out at the last possible second. Uh, Danielson goes for a back suplex. London tries to fight him off. Um, the, the top rope back suplex. London tries to fight him off, you know, sort of like they had that struggle at the, at the top in their match at Night of the Butcher, which was awesome. So they do that a lot here. So they're fighting off the top. London shifts the, to the crossbody, and he wins the first fall. So, and the crowd chants for Dragon during the 30-second rest period. Um, it was, I mean, just the execution was great. This would have been a great match just by itself, I would say. Um, so that's why the two out of three falls really take it to another level, because they have a 30-second rest period. There's a big one more fall chant, like you said, another chant, and uh, toward by the London fans, and so they go right back into it. And the the um, the storyline of this fall is London uh, hurts his leg, his his uh, his left knee, because what happened was uh, he goes to the to- a dragon goes to the top rope, London goes to fight him off, and then dragon pops up and drop kicks London, and London falls kind of into a tree of woe. But the way he's hanging there, it's like it really messes up his knee, and he's just hanging there. And then Dragon just like viciously goes after the knee while he's in the tree of woe. And at that point, um, it's like um, the crowd. First of all, the crowd chants, "Where's your honor?" at him. <laughs> and and this is when he's like he's like going after the knee. He just he just goes after it hardcore, and and um. And he's like he's like digging like he, he hits his, the knee into the the guardrail outside, and there's kind of a weird line from Gabe here because Gabe is talking about how there's like this little like knob of steel that's like you know on the guardrail, and Gabe's like you know what it's like to get a little knob of steel driven into a body part, and I'm like <laughs> I don't I don't actually don't I I can imagine that it might not be good, but I don't know what it's like. Um, it's happened to everybody at least at least once. Um, Gabe might be the MVP of the Epic Encounter. I agree. Did you notice that line? Yeah, I did. Like, like I was trying to think. Like, did he? I started to think. Does he mean like? Um, <laughs> does he think everyone has accidents with like nailing stuff or yeah. um, sleeps on a bad bed where the springs poke through or or like <laughs> that's got I, I, I was just confused. <laughs> so then, right after this, dragon gets him back in the ring and gets that gets this like big half crab on him, and he keeps pulling him away from the ropes, and the crowd loves it. And then he pulls him away one more time and just bends all the way back and digs his knee into London's head or London's neck, and London taps, like, immediately. So it was a pretty short second fall, but really effective, because it gets over the third fall. Like, this is the storyline of the match. You know, London's knee is still destroyed. Um, so when when, this, when the third fall starts, London buys himself some time with the Inzagiri, and then he just kicks the crap out of Dragon's face to get out of another half-crab. But he's really selling the leg. He's doing a really good job. When he, go, when he goes up to the top rope, he does, like, the one-legged climb to the top rope. He's got this. Like, he's, he's all on it, like, as far as the selling goes. Hits the leg hook DDT, but the cover is delayed, and he sells the knee. Um, he can't hit a body slam because of his leg, which I thought was a pretty cool spot. And the, the thing that, that you start to notice here is that Dragon is taking, like, tons of stiff shots to the head. Like, Dragon, like, London's kicking him in the face. He hits that Inzagiri on the apron earlier. So, like, that becomes, like, a like kind of a secondary storyline. Um, but he gets the cattle mutilation. London gets to the ropes pretty quickly. Um, but, and both are on the ground, and London's just, like, slapping Dragon and gets a two count just from that. Um, do, there's there's an, an Inzagiri that happens that that Doug calls an Engaziri, which I uh, which I enjoyed. Um, hey, it happens. It's a long match. Um, Dragon suplex by uh, Danielson gets a near fall. Then he goes back to the half crab, but uh, but London immediately gets to the ropes. 
And then London kind of does this uh, neck cradle power bomb, but he can't cover. He's just selling, like, so hardcore. Gets to the top rope eventually, and Dragon just, like, dumps him onto the apron. And he sets him up for uh, uh, the back suplex on the top and just, like, wails on London's back uh, in order to kind of hit it. And he hits the and he hits the top rope back suplex this time. It looks awesome, and it, but it gets a very slow cover, so it's only a two count. Then he goes back to the half crab, and this is possibly the debut of the "Please Don't Tap" chant right here, because um, you know the, they already had the "Please Don't Die" chant for him. So I think this is the debut of the "Please Don't Tap" chant. Um, Dragon pulls him back to the center and bends him back, but London London's just fighting off, fighting off, gets to the ropes. And at one point, like, London's getting to the ropes, and I can't tell if the crowd is chanting pull, 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 like they want him to pull toward the ropes, or if they're chanting Paul, Paul, Paul. Um, I assume it's Paul, but that's not usually what they <laughs> chant toward him. Um, and then um, Dragon, like, starts, like, you know, more, like, Dragon personality. He starts to lead the crowd in, like, this mocking chant, um, London, London. Which I, I appreciated at this late stage in the match. You know, the he crowds, even does the Hulk Hogan ear, like he puts the cups his hand to his ear, like "Come on, you want to cheer for him?" Like he starts being a little bit of a dick, which is great. Yeah, I, I agree, and and you can see like just like the storyline of this match is so solid, and, and the work is so good. And Dragon puts London back on top, and he gets him into position actually for a back suplex like onto the floor, uh, but London fights off with headbutts. And um, kicks Dragon off, but Dragon gets right back up, just like at the Night of the Butcher, and more headbutts. And Dragon eventually, uh, he looks out on his feet, and London hits this crazy spinning DDT. Um, And he goes back to the top with one leg, and Dragon tries to get up, but London hits the shooting star press to his back. Um, And he gets the pin, and... uh, and you know that's and that's the match, and it was amazing, and it was great that it, like they didn't really do the whole near fall thing at the end. It was just about this struggle, and they do a great job. And and Dragon sells like he has this major concussion post match, and he actually has done that sell a lot, where he just looks woozy after a match to the point where I'm like, how much is he selling? Because <laughs> we know what's <laughs> happened to his head, you know, we know about all of his issues. So it's possible that he just allowed himself to get concussions all the time. I think that's actually pretty <laughs> likely, and that's where and and um. And London helps him to his feet. There's a thank you both chant. The the only thing that made this ending awkward was Gabe on commentary going, "You have just seen a classic. You have just seen an epic epic encounter." And like just like the way he just said it so like clumsily and awkwardly, it kind of took the little the punch out of it. But the match was so good. The only reason that I wouldn't have it as my top is because I'm a sucker for like the big dramatic high spots, and this match wasn't about that. It was really about this slow burn, about just like working, making everything count, about working everything beautifully. And so, like, it was very steady, but it didn't have these big dramatic moments in the same way that the low key match did, like, where, like, the, the key crusher off the top, where, like, they roll to the floor and the crowd just gets up with the standing ovation. Like, so I, it just didn't have that sort of thing that I'm the sucker for. Like, this isn't the kind of match where you where you can, like, you pick out the moments. This is a match where you watch the whole thing and watch it build and build and build. And that's a point in its favor, but it's the reason why I have it at number two so far instead of at number one. But good luck topping it for 2003. Mm. Matt, this match was horrible. <laughs> Horribly great. <laughs> no, um, no, this was fantastic. Um, I, I think right off the bat, you're absolutely, I mean, there's so much of stuff you said that, like, is right exactly what's in my notes. There, like, the epic encounter really is a, uh, 
a great name for this match because it felt epic in terms of um like the fatigue they sell, the length, like it felt like a real battle, but yet it was just an encounter. It didn't feel, you know, there's no real personal feud to this match. Danielson, even though he's starting to be a bit of a surly Danielson dick, it still really is a face versus face match. Um, it, it, it's, it doesn't have, like you said, that those big flashy moments that you might get from certain matches, it's more like this match is like mom's Thanksgiving dinner compared to like some fancy five-star restaurant where it it's doesn't have like the flash, but it's just satisfying and, and everything about it is just made with love. Like, I mean, I assume they love me. <laughs> and um, I, the thing you mentioned that really stuck out to me most from your review of it was you used the word struggle. And I wrote that in all caps in my notes. Just looking at back at my notes, I wrote um, – for the first 10 minutes of this match, they take it to the mat. The holds are put on tightly, and guys are fighting out of them, not just reversing them. There's moments of one-ups. If London breaks a hold by walking through the ropes, Danielson will do the same, but then snap London's arm over the ropes for good measure. It's not just a match, it's a struggle. And I thought that's the point, like, that's the big takeaway for this is... People today talk about even great matches where wrestling has feels like way more of an exhibition... I feel like this felt like they were in the moment all the time. Like even big story moments that they probably thought up beforehand, like um, London hurting his leg and and Danielson pouncing on it. They everything felt organic. Everything felt like they were reacting to each other. And all the moves, like all the submissions and stuff. So often when Danielson and like London or Danielson and certain other opponents wrestle. They're not just like trying to do a clever reversal of a submission. It's like when they're stuck in a hold, they're punching the other guy and slapping them and growling. Like everything is a struggle. Every moment is is, impo- is important, not in the sense of like, oh, every moment plays into the finish of the match. But no, like just every moment they're thinking about what you would do in that moment. What you, how you should react to it. You know, you should want to fight. You're not just lying in this hold until it's your time to do like a quick flip and get out of it. It's like everything's a fight. And just the little moments that come up, like, you know, the, the, the handshake thing or the, like, they all seem like they're just, there's the match is full of these little moments that are just coming up spontaneously that I'm sure were spontaneous moments that they didn't plan out that just that one guy is reacting to another guy. And, I think stuff like that, it's 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 a great not just is it is a fantastic match, it's fantastic in a way that we don't get as often anymore in wrestling. And I really, really appreciate that. I liked how they timed out the match. Um a lot of times in two out of three falls matches, guys kind of don't know what to do with the extra falls, so they'll either do a couple real quick together or a couple right off the bat and just do the singles match they want or a couple right at the end maybe even. In this match, you look at the times in the falls. In a 40-minute match, they give you the first fall in 28 minutes, then another fall six minutes later, then they give you like another 13 minutes. So I felt like that's a really good way to space it out. You know, it's not it's not one of those two or three false matches where magically it's the only match in the world where a match between two guys ends in five minutes when normally you know it would take 20. Like, no, they put the 20-minute fall or, you know, they put the first fall right where you'd expect these guys to have a match normally. Um, yeah. Gotcha. 
Go on. I was gonna say one one thing I, I didn't mention that I noticed. This is a kind of match like you like you like I just wanted to pick up piggyback on what you said. No one does this kind of match anymore. Um, I don't know if anyone can do this match, this kind of match anymore, because it's a very old school kind of match. Like this is like an 80s style great wrestling match. Like some of the moves are updated. You know, obviously they didn't have shooting star presses, and you know maybe you wouldn't have the top rope back suplex. Maybe it would be a second rope back suplex. Um, but uh, and wouldn't have as many dives to the outside. But like this is like this isn't like modern indie like MMA hi- hybrid mat stuff. Like you know this is just like they did pro wrestling and they just did it very. It's like con- I don't want to say conventionally because that makes it sound dull, but they just they did it. They did the basics and they just did them like extra. <laughs> you know, it was just extra good and special and and it's it's so impressive. Like these guys are both so young. You know, Danielson. What what was he? Twenty. Two at this point, I don't even know. It's crazy to think how young he was, and you know, it's like I, I hesitate to say they didn't even need to get any better at this point because obviously you want to keep getting better, and Danielson did get better at a lot of different things. But as far as just having like a technical, like well thought out wrestling match, they really didn't need to get any better than they were at this point. You know, it, this is like a match that you know all time greats have, and what tells you is that. These two, and you know, obviously we know at least Danielson was already an all-time great at this point. It's it's remarkable. One thing that's uh, I think really interesting about it too is sometimes when I watch a match between two guys, like a really really great match, like this one was, I think you know these guys could probably have another great match, but like it won't be this good. Like this is a match. This was a night where everything what what part of what made it great was everything went their way. Everything was hitting on all cylinders. It was just like a magical night. This is a great match. It didn't feel like a magical night. Like it felt like if these guys were booked to do this, to do another two out of three false match in a month, they could have a match this good again. Like nothing about it felt like it was anything extra special. It felt just like these are two fantastic wrestlers doing what they can always do against each other like it just and somehow that makes it more impressive it wasn't like they got lucky here or everything broke their way right it was it like just, flair, flair and steamboat like where they just had that great that all-time great match all the time and in fact i'll bring up like a quote from dave's these are reports dave got in the observer but dave's like summarizing them dave wrote about this match he said the big thing from this, the Epic Encounter, sh- or this this show, he didn't say the Epic Encounter, but the big thing everyone was talking about was a Paul London versus Brian Danielson match. Um, what made this match were the crowd reactions said to be just about the best in the history of the company. It didn't have as many high spots, but people were into the wrestling, and the divided crowd made for a great atmosphere, actually compared to a Flair Steamboat style. So there's, you know, Dave even from the report saying, like, kind of what we were saying which is maybe not quite as many high spots and comparing it to flyer steamboat and of course the great crowd reactions although i do i do hate when he's when he says stuff like oh what made this match was the crowd reactions um and i've mentioned that's a bit reductive yeah yeah and i've mentioned this on podcast before where he talked about the cage of death where dave was like what made this match was jj dylan's facial expressions and it was like no that is not what made the match (laughs) these guys were amazing like the crowd reactions could have been less good and the match would still have been awesome I will say the crowd reactions did add to this match for me. And I do think, again, the number of crowd, the different, these were, there was so many crowd like chants and, and in this match, but yet compared to today's wrestling shows, they felt organic. And I'm not against chanting like some fans are. I'm not that, I don't harp on it, but it did feel like these were coming from a more honest place. And because it was more, 
it was before these things were the norm. Yeah, well, when you're chanting and, something that you've never heard before, it is honest. Like when you're doing something that you've heard a million times, you're just you're yeah. you're simulating. Like when you're doing and stuff that wouldn't come later, like when Danielson gets a little bit rough, like you mentioned with with uh, London's leg, he gets "Where's Your Honor," which is a very like unique impromptu chant to get started, or. Even like I think the London fans were better at chanting than the Danielson fans because they also when London wins the first fall they start chanting one more fall one more fall like they're very into this like the story and result of this match like they're cheering London on like you just need one more now yep like it, it's not just like London London you know it's it's it it's chants that are fitting the moments of the match you know they're they're engaged in it so. That was really cool, but I do think it'll be interesting to see the next few shows. Is this like the start of more of a chant culture in independent wrestling? Because it, it feels like it could be. It feels like this might be like one of the the flag posts. Yeah, of it, it. I think it'll probably take until the DVD makes the rounds, right? Like for people. Yeah. But so it probably won't be right away. But yeah, I, I do want to mention one more time, like the contrast of this match to the other matches. You know, there was some good stuff earlier on the show. It wasn't a, hasn't been a great show, but there's some good. I mean, obviously AJ Styles was already in all like you know a, a wrestler you know fairly close to the level of these guys, if not on it. Um, but there was nothing on the show that felt as quality, as solid, as professional as this match. Um, and it makes a big difference. Like you're just like it's like you're watching a different universe when you when this match pops onto the onto the screen. Um. The other thing about the crowd I thought was interesting was right at the start, um, there there's huge reactions like right before the match even starts. There's dueling chants and huge reactions. And I'll note this match, you know, Danielson and London had wrestled each other twice before in Ring of Honor, but there was no storyline. There was no big feud. But but yet the crowd when they were seeing this match, even before it really got going, w- like were reacting like they thought this was a huge deal. Yeah, because like, these because these are the two best wrestlers in the company at this point. I think. You know, you, you saw Loki's kind of stock drop a little bit, and now you know I think you're pretty much officially at the point where London is clearly the most, you know, respected, you know, or at least most beloved figure in the company, and Danielson is the most respected. So you know, when you get that kind of thing, and you already know that they can do great things with each other, it's pretty special. And just uh, uh, it's hard for me to know where I would rank, like I'm where I would rank this, but. I would put this on the same level at least as Key Danielson. And I, I I feel like it's almost what mood you're in for because I feel like some like Danielson is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I think he's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. But this is kind of a Danielson match where going back to what you were saying before, he doesn't always quite hit like the certain high spot highs sometimes in some of his matches, but everything like there's a craft to everything he does. That is so satisfying that no one else does. Like, like it, yeah, it won't. This match won't have the crazy gifable highs of a Danielson Key or the three-way of an honor begins or anything like that, or maybe even certain emotional notes. But just like the way they work the match and the way it feels in the home stretch, how exhausted they feel, and the little stories and moments that come up organically, and just how confident they see they seem. I mean, all of that is special, like, is, those are elements that no match in Ring of Honor history thus far has had to this degree. And I think watching this match, one thing that really hit home, what separates Danielson and Key and Joe from so many guys 
is they carry themselves with such confidence. Like watch the way Danielson carries himself, his body language, his reactions, how confident he seems in everything he does. He feels like when you, when you watch him wrestle these matches, even though he's like in his early 20s, he I've said this before, but he feels like he's a 40-year-old. Like he feels in all the best ways. Like, like his skin, he, like when you touch him. Yeah, it's, Leathery, it's getting saggy. Like, You're starting to see, you know, crow's feet. But no, I mean, you're um, he carries himself, even though he's only been wrestling a few years, like he's the king and a legend. And anyone that wrestles him is going to have to earn everything they get. You know, yeah. like I, I've heard Chris Hero before talk about when he did his bully gimmick that like some wrestlers complained that he ate them up too much, like he took too much of the match. But he was like, look, I'll give you your comebacks. You have to fight for your comebacks against me because that's my character. I feel like Danielson already was kind of wrestling like if you want to come back against me, you better like bring your a game, you know, not that he ate guys up. I think he was a generous wrestler, but even just the way he would like grind on a guy or earlier in the match, step on a guy's head in a, in a submission or like when London fired up in that match, in the match, like that point you described where uh dragon Danielson has him in the, uh, abdominal stretch and he's leaning on him and London finally goes like, is that all you got or whatever? And like calls him names. That's the side of London we hadn't seen before. And I think Danielson, there's something about Danielson that brings that side out in wrestlers. Like Joe even would get really intense in his matches against Danielson more so than he would against anyone this side of low key or necro butcher. Like there's something about the way Danielson works that forces, I think some wrestlers to get like to match that intensity something special about him. I will. I definitely agree with that. And, um, just fantastic match. And one of those matches that I think I wish I had more time because I think this is the kind of match that gets better when you watch it. And then you wait a day and you watch it again. I, I, I think this is a match that is that, that rewards repeated viewings, not just in story elements. I just think, I, I just think it's a match that gets better when you watch it more. Like a fine it, it, wine. Yes. The more I drink that wine, the better it tastes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> That's what I meant. It was, probably but, a bad, um, it was probably a bad analogy, and you just showed me why. <laughs> um, yeah, just great, great. I mean, I don't know how many times. I, a fantastic match. I like the end where they shake hands. I like that. It's a great visual where both guys are shaking hands, but they're being propped up by refs while they're shaking hands, and then they both have to be held to the back. It's like a real Rocky, the start of Rocky Two moment where both guys are just beat to shit, and like they respect each other, but it's also like, uh, I need to lie down now. Like, yeah. Thanks for the handshake, but I, I, I'm I'm hurting, and. I guess the only flaw you could find in the match, I would say, is I'm so conditioned now, especially from watching modern wrestling, that the ends of wrestling matches are always like bam, 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 like five reversals, five big moves, five big near falls right at the end. And this match is like London hits a big counter off one top rope and then slowly makes his way up to the top rope. And you go, and you're thinking, oh, he's going to hit the shooting star press, but he's taking so long because he's hurt. Maybe there'll be a counter. And no, he just hits it. And it's over. And in a way, that's the strength of this match because it's so different and they're selling the exhaustion. But on the other hand, if you're conditioned to wanting like big, giant, like twist and turns in a real fast tempo, the end of this match is basically two moves taking a long time and like the end being exactly what you think it's going to be. And I could see some people go, I don't like that. 
But I could see also some people say that's my favorite part of this. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely a part that I liked about it. Like that it was just yeah. like they, they just like they struggled when won the struggle. It was over. Yeah, completely different from so much of wrestling nowadays. And again, that's just a warning. Like you, you might. I think I'll be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't like like this match quite a bit. But I could definitely see that being the one part where some people go, you know what? I just expect something different. And I could see some people say, I wish more matches had that finish. Exactly. Where it's just like, I know this is coming. Is he going to hit it? Yeah, he hits it. It's exactly what I thought. But. Right. So um, that's that. Well, that's that match. We looked for that forward to that for a long time. Um, next, we see Louis Ramos, Julius Smokes, and Becky Bayless make their way into the. Oh, sorry. Actually, no. I sorry. I it was my fault. But I just wanted to say because I never got. I never really get to say this that we just have reviewed the titular match on this card. Sorry, I just felt. Like, I no. just felt like I needed to say that. We've got to start working that in more yeah. now. I got to make a note. Most shows um, do not. Most shows do not have a titular match. Nope. This is, uh, yeah, you, you're actually very much right. Huh. Sorry. Now, I, I, no, I know I want to do a list now of those matches and I got to stop myself because I have to review what comes next, which is Louis Ramos, Julie Smokes, Becky Bayless. I got to stop thinking about it. Quit making a list in your head. <laughs> um, make their way into the building from the outside. At the same time, David Young and Iceberg's brawl that we saw earlier makes their way from the back of the building. It, Coming from the outside into the back of the building where the ring is and everything. Then Homicide and C.W. Anderson start brawling. They make their way into the ring in their brawl. Then we hear some music and out comes the Midnight Rider. The old gimmick for those who don't know of Dusty Rose would lose loser leaves town matches. But then a mysterious fat guy who had the same dimensions as Dusty in a mask would show up as the Midnight Rider. Classic old gimmick. Well, the Midnight Rider shows up here with cowbell and rope and everything. Um, he makes his way out to the ring. And when all of the group is distracted by the Midnight Rider and Gabe is thinking that the, it's the Midnight Rider has got to be Dusty, out comes the real Dusty Rhodes who attacks and kicks off the match. And then D Gabe plays off like almost does like a Bobby Heenan thing like oh I I knew that wasn't Dusty and like mm -hmm. Doug calls him out. Um, I I was asked online when I talked about this who um, the Midnight Rider for this was. At first I didn't know, but then reading an Observer I found out it was according to Dave just some fat guy who worked the concession stand that they dressed up like the Midnight Rider. So no wrestler, no secret thing. It's just they got another fat guy to do the misdirection spot. <laughs> it was a cute spot. And then we get to the match, which is – depending on what site you look at, there are different ways to categorize this match because some of them have it like a four-on-four -four match. Because people get involved later, some just included it at them as legal people. The match was unsanctioned to begin with, so I'm just going to call it a 12-man tag team I quit bunkhouse match. Becky Bayless, Dusty Rhodes, Homicide, Iceberg. J Train, Julie Smokes, and Louis Ramos defeat the group of C.W. Anderson and Jack Victory, plus the barroom brawler David Young, Guillotine Legrand, and Simply Luscious in 10 minutes, 45 seconds. Wait, wait, there was that. Who was the one guy that they were like, I don't know who that guy is? I think that might have been the barroom brawler. Okay. I think he's the only guy they didn't name by name. It's amazing that they had they actually had a wrestler that they just straight up said, we don't know who that is. Yeah, he never – poor guy works and doesn't even get credit because um, David Young, they say that um, 
he's not part of the group. They they say that Steve Credo called in a favor because he got David Young bookings in Japan for zero one. So he's calling in a favor to get David Young to fight for him here. And then Guillotine Legrand comes in the ring later, and he's just a friend, also a guy who worked in zero one and a friend of Steve Carino's. But anyway, uh, Homicide and Dusty Rhodes team beats the group's team. 10.45, Homicide makes Jack victory, say, I quit. So this match, like, was shockingly, like, well, I guess not shocking, maybe unsurprisingly, ex- almost exactly like the Abdullah the Butcher Homicide versus Carnage crew match at uh, Night of the Butcher in so many ways. Like, let's go over it. First off, both the matches are Homicide ending a feud with an I quit with a not an I quit with a bunkhouse death match. And this well, this doesn't end the Homicide Steve Carino feud. This basically ends the Homicide's friends versus, you know, um the group feud. The whole riot angles that were building this up. I think on the last show before this, Gabe said like this will be the end of the riots and stuff. Like we're doing this to end all that. So in a way, it's a feud ender, just like the Abdullah match was the end of the Homicide Carnage Crew feud. Just like that match, this match is nothing but guys walking around the ring bleeding. Just like that, just like the Abdul the Butcher match, both matches feature a semi-mobile big fat legend doing very little. Um, Dusty, like, Dusty a lot more mobile than Abdullah, though. Yes, he is. More, he, he throws a lot of bionic elbows, some of them which look really awful and show a lot of daylight. Guys are bumping way too soon for it, but and he gets yeah. in the ring, and he gets in the ring very easily. <laughs> yes. But this match, it's one of those matches, like, to, the best way to sum up this match is, I think when they officially start the match, within one minute, everyone in, in or around the ring is bleeding. And you don't like, totally know how they all got that way. <laughs> yeah, everyone is bleeding. If you like people, like, walking around, punching each other, and bleeding, this is the match for you. It, um, There's hardly any actual wrestling moves in it. It. I would call this below average as a wrestling match, but at the same time, like it's exactly, I couldn't say I was disappointed because it was exactly what I thought it would be. Like this is, if you see this match, like on paper, you know what it's going to be. They didn't disappoint. They bled a lot. They worked just long enough to not let people feel like they were financially cheated. Um, The one thing that um, before I hand it over to you that I thought was really poorly done was this is an I quit match. So they do the thing that sometimes they do in I quit matches where no one gets asked if they quit until the finish. So no one even tries until the finish. The end is homicides leaning on Jack victory with a fork, cutting him, blah, blah, blah. And dusty keeps holding the mic up to Jack victory's mouth and asking if he quits now. Cause like Jack victory is getting cut and prodded. He's like kind of garbling and the house mic sounds awful anyway. So you can't hear what Jack victory is really saying. So at first he's like, do you quit, Jack? And he's like, rah, 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 rah. so homicide keeps stabbing him. Dusty asks again. I can't understand what he said, but all of a sudden, Gabe and Doug on commentary both are like, he quit, he quit. That's the end of the match. And then Dusty obviously didn't hear that, and neither did the crowd or anybody, because Dusty asks him again. Yeah. And like a couple more times. And finally, Jack Victory just garbles some more. And then Gabe and Doug again say, he quit, he quit. And then 
Dusty's music starts playing because it's an unsanctioned match. They're like, there's no bell, I don't think. And people still brawl around the ring for like another 20 seconds and the match just ends. Yeah, they just so, suddenly, just suddenly like stop brawling. They're just like, they're, yeah. they're, they're brawling, they're fighting, and they just put their fists down and walk away. You know, like, like that's how an unsanctioned like blood feud <laughs> would end. It's just, oh, oh, I guess someone said I quit. Let's, let's go home, guys. Yeah. But yeah, so... Uh, Matt, you said you have, earlier with the David Young stuff, you'd have more to say. What did you? Um, what, let's hear what you have to say. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so I, I guess I guess this will be might be one of the first times where you're a lot nicer to something than I am. Um, but yeah, I, I I I get the idea of you want to have something for everybody on the show, and you know you have your main course, which is uh, Dragon versus London, and then this is the dessert. But I ask you. Is there any kind of wrestling fan who really likes this kind of match? I I'm fully in favor of bloody brawls at you know from time to time or more than from time to time. I think they could be really cool. They think it'd be good, be really good finishes um, to a show. This is not the kind of bloody brawl that anyone likes. This is like you said, a bunch of guys standing around hitting each other. Half the guys have no history in the promotion. Half the guys have no context for being there. There's no heat to this at all. You didn't mention that, but there, you have to admit, nobody cared about any of this. They liked Dusty Rose's entrance uh, maybe one or two times when they noticed a fork stabbing going on or like a wooden spike stabbing. They were like, ooh. But nobody cared about anything that was happening. Nobody got excited at the end of the match when, when it ended. No, just It was because there was no context to it. Like, you have these guys that, you know, it's just, this. it's like drama, storytelling 101. You're not going to ca- have an emotional connection to an event that happens between people you don't know who they are. So, earlier in the show, they have, um, they talk about the, the, the old school brawlers, and you have um, uh, Smokes and Ramos backstage. They just beat up some old school brawlers. Who cares? Who are these people? Um, then, you have David Young and Iceberg fighting, back, uh, fighting outside. Now, granted... They, obviously, their names elsewhere, but they have not ever been ever been in ROH, and we're supposed David to. David just... Young has David Young was he in that three way with AJ and it was the NWA Wildside three way, or am I confusing him with someone else? You might be right about that. Um, I'm not sure. We haven't be... seen Iceberg certainly. Definitely not Iceberg. And if if David Young was on the show, it was one random match where he had no personality or character whatsoever. But we're suddenly supposed to care about this intense fight that they're having outside and that's how we start this match like in the back they burst through and they're fighting and it's like oh my god these guys i don't know them but they're fighting yay and then um you know it's cool to have dusty there but this match was you know there was just nothing to this match um and like you know the, the logic of it doesn't really make sense this is an unsanctioned match um and you know roh is just given the platform but we have nothing to do with this which you know doesn't totally make sense it's like oh but you're promoting it and making money off of it right so you kind of do and you have your referee there and and a bell ringer and all that stuff and it and like the lights are going on and off. It's like you know it's an unsanctioned match, so the lights are a little funny. It's like I don't know how one would connect to the other. That, was, that, that's the really interesting part is like obviously this is the first show they did in the dark. So at one point it's like the lights are up and then they kind of go down and then they go like half dim. It was almost like because it was a brawl at ringside for the first time in this new era, they didn't know how to light it. Like they still kind of wanted it dark. But they didn't know how dark to make it. They couldn't make it completely dark like it was in the past. Because it was non-sanctioned. Yeah, yeah. and Gabe's – like you just said, Gabe's response is to say it's because it's unsanctioned. That's why the lights are funny. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But, um, you know, it's just like – 
it was just like there was just nothing to it. And I, I just don't think that anyone likes this kind of match. I, I might be projecting or wrong, but I really don't. Like, this is not the good version of a brawl. This isn't like in some grand tradition. I don't know, maybe it's like, you know, I haven't watched a ton of Detroit, but I could see maybe like like old chic matches kind of being like this, where you're just kind of like stabbing somebody, and I guess maybe Abdullah too. But this doesn't feel like the brawls that people like. There are really no high spots. There's just like, it's just stabbing and walking around and hitting and not, not, nothing interesting to speak of. I guess the most exciting moment to me was seeing uh, Julius Smokes do a running drop kick off the apron because <laughs> that sure is not something I expected. Um, you know, and then as far as violence against women, um, I know we were talking about whether some of this stuff counted. So after watching the whole thing with Jack Victory where he grabs Becky Bayless and has Simply Luscious uh, slap her. I think that counts. He was holding her very aggressively. And then Dusty Rhodes just tugs Simply Luscious into the ring by the hair, which if that's not violent, I don't, I don't know what is. And then he force kisses her, which, you know, again, I know is pretty common in wrestling in the past, um, as far as baby faces, you know, forced kissing heel women, but it sure doesn't look good now. Um, so I think we can fairly say that the streak continues with that. See, um, I, I, I mean, it's tough because Ring of Honor has beaten me down so much that, like, I just expect every Ring of Honor show, like, a wrestler punching, a man punching a woman in the face. And we did not get this on the show. We got Colt Gabbana did lightly spank Trinity on the ass as he carried her away. And we got the two things you said, which are both not good. Especially Dusty, he forcibly kisses Simply Luscious and then like spits afterwards and acts like it was disgusting. Like you can't have it both ways. You can't sexually assault someone and then be like, Oh, my sexual assault wasn't satisfying. Well, like, like you can't go to Seven Eleven and like steal a candy bar and then go back and go, I stole this candy bar and it doesn't taste good. Like somehow, even though the really just the assault should be the thing that bugs me, that made me like more pissed off. Like, yes. but if you, in real, if in real life you saw a man grab a woman by the hair, Tug her aggressively, like upward to where he was standing. Kiss her, throw her down, spit. Would you not say this was violent? No. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I'm gonna include this. You're you're right. I mean, especially because like he he Dusty even teased that he was gonna hit her, and then it was like, well, instead of hitting her, I'm gonna do this even worse thing to her. I'm gonna kiss her. Like yeah. just yeah, yes, and 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 even the victory thing. Like he was again like holding. Bet Bayless very aggressively. She's another yes. one where it's like she was appeared once, but we don't know anything about her. Like we, we're not given reasons to care about anybody except homicide. Um, you know, I guess Dusty makes sense because like we know like en- enough people, I guess, remembered his feud with Carino and Victory from ECW. But you know, besides besides all that, I just I just thought this was useless. And again, it was also heatless. Like it really was. The crowd was just not having this after what they had just seen. So I thought this was one of the worst the worst uh, endings to an ROH show. I, you know, again, like the Dusty Rose entrance was probably the highlight. And, and then it was kind of downhill from there, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I, I, again, I think as a wrestling match, this is below average. I am light, probably easier on it than you just because the novelty of Dusty Rhodes being there and the Midnight Rider and, and stuff. And this match doesn't happen too often in Ring of Honor. I do think that, some people do like these kind of matches. I think, you know, Abdullah the Butcher made a career on the walk and bleed. So I think some people, there must be some kind of market for this. But I think Abdullah I, the Butcher, was his thing was like, it was a time when more people believed and he was like scary. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is just like heatless. You know what I mean? Yeah, and 
I wonder if this is the kind of match that plays better if you're in the front two rows of a wrestling show than you are watching a DVD. Because if you see a like, I remember the first wrestling show I ever saw was a uh, a show in Kelowna, like a, my local indie the first indie show I ever saw and a guy did a move and he bled over my shoe. And I remember being like a young, like teenager, like 13 or something. I thought that was the coolest thing ever that I had a wrestler's blood on my shoe. I can tell you now growing, grown, all grown up. <laughs> I would, I would be like, you ruined my shoe. You better buy me a new shoe. I'd be getting I- tested like by <laughs> taking blood tests, like once every three weeks, I think for the next year. If that was me. So- so again, maybe this is also something that we some of us age out of, like the novelty of it, the novelty of I'm seeing like ten grown men bleed in front of me, like from feet away. I I don't know, maybe there's a novelty to that, but again, like you said, there wasn't heat for this. I think there wouldn't have been heat in any circumstance, but especially when you consider it had to follow Danielson London, and by all accounts, the Ring of Honor show was running late, and a lot of these people probably had tickets to CZW. That probably even makes it even worse. You know, probably you got had this... some better brawling on that show anyway. Yeah, I, I have to imagine, and I also imagine that like um, Dusty wasn't cheap. You know, that's the other thing. I wonder how many tickets Dusty sold. Like, how many fans are going, like, I'm not going to go to Ring of Honor, but Dusty Rhodes is there in a a big brawl with a bunch of wrestlers I don't know or care about that aren't really involved in Ring of Honor? Like, how many people came for Dusty Rhodes? I'm not sure. You know, like, when Abdullah the Butcher, I I think that was a show that they had to shift that from Pennsylvania to uh, Philly on the last second. From from Reading to Philly, yeah. Yeah, it, it did not do well. And this is another – again, it's another match where it's – we're going to book a, an old veteran to do a brawl with Homicide and have him give Homicide the rub. I don't know how much of a rub Homicide got, and I don't know how many tickets this sold. Well, and this, and, isn't, this isn't the last time that ROH books legends that probably don't make much of a difference on the bottom line. Or in some cases, legends that the crowd actively shits on. Yeah. I mean, everyone from Jeff Hardy to Shane Douglas. Sometimes when they spent the money to get a, a name, like it backfired. And the, at least, at, at least here, the crowd did not shit on Dusty Rhodes. They no, they no. accepted him. I, can, I, I, mean, I mean, you can't shit on Dusty Rhodes, right? Well, I mean, depend depends. You know, Bruce Mitchell might shit on Dusty Rhodes. I guess. Uh, Afterwards, so uh, Homicide's team celebrates in the ring. Dusty gets on the mic. He puts over Homicide, and he thanks us kids for letting this old fat man come out there. And that's his words, not mine. I'm not being mean to him. So, And then we cut immediately from that to a backstage Dusty Homicide promo, which is a little um, – I, I will maybe put a different segment there first because to cut from Dusty on the mic bleeding in the ring immediately back to them backstage was like – slightly jarring for my sensitive millennial like body and brain, but, uh, Dusty's backstage bloody homicides, bloody Julius smokes is there with them. Dusty puts over homicide again and he calls homicide Hama, which made me laugh. He's like my big boy Hama took him on. Like, I love that he chose that as the nickname Hama. Um, Dusty says Creno ran from Dusty, but Hama took Hama's, Homicide then says he took out all of Carino's boys and Carino is next. Julius Smokes starts Julius Smokesing, just doing a Julius Smokes promo. And Dusty looks – watch Dusty while Julius Smokes does his thing. Dusty looks like blank face staring at him like he does not know how to react to Julius Smokes. And then Dusty, before the promo is over, just like walks out of frame <laughs> because he's like, I don't know what to do. 
with this human. Like Julia smokes is too, is too um, boisterous for dusty roads. He's like, okay, this is good. I, I'm, I'll, you, you, you can settle down. I'm, I'm going away. But you could clearly, and, uh, you, I could clearly see dusty saying my flesh, my flesh, my blood, my blood, <laughs> right? It kind of works. Your hand to mine. I can't. Do, I'm the only person in the world that can't do a Dusty Rhodes impression. But like, I'm not even gonna I, try. <laughs> you you could definitely stick that into the Hard Times promo. Yeah. But um. Blah blah blah. Um. Uh, Cabana and Punk. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the end of the promo is just Homicide telling Carino that this is wherever he is that this isn't over. So yes, the Homicide's crew and the group feud is over. But Homicide, Carino still have unfinished business. Next up, yes, we have Cabana and Punk backstage. Cabana cuts a serious promo about how he and P- Punk have been friends and partners through the years. And, you know, that's why he stuck with him over Raven. And boy, is Colt not good at cutting a serious promo here. Stilted and awkward. And then Punk cuts a promo of his own. It's a very standard by the book CM Punk promo from this era it's good but it's very standard like oh raven your mind games won't work with trinity um he mentions the name of a stable for the first time the second city saints but he calls them the second city stains and has to correct himself i don't know why they couldn't have done a take two on this but they didn't uh anyway at the end they do the typical ring of honor thing where you hear gabe's voice be like great promo that's a wrap and then they break character quote unquote and Colt reverts to back to wacky Colt. He uh, says he has some new catchphrases to try out on CM Punk. Punk gets like exhausted and exasperated. He's like, if you bring up David Hasselhoff, <laughs> I'm leaving. In which I, I agree totally with Punk on this one. Um, Colt tries out some of his new catchphrases, which are all existing pop culture catchphrases like Waka Waka and Dynamite. Um, I really enjoy Punk here as the grumpy put-upon straight man to horrible comedy. He just seems like such a 70-year-old man in the best ways. At one point when he talks – when he does Dynamite, Punk just goes, that sitcom's not even in reruns. (laughs) It's been off the air for years. Like he's just so like – just can't – you know, can't take this. Don't be dissing um, good times. Don't be dissing good times, Punk. <laughs> but, uh, and it's also, that's, that show is based in Chicago, so even better. Yeah, so Punk would be an expert on that. Uh, Colt even suggests, I'm Colt Cabana and I'm just playing through, which was Johnny Carson's old catchphrase, so mm-hmm. really digging deep there. D- Dave Meltzer would be apoplectic about the dated references. <laughs> well, unless he put a Dallas or like a Dynasty reference in there, then, yeah. then he'd be like, oh, this is great. Um, I'm all about dated references, personally. I think they're 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 fun. They're the funniest ones. As an old man now of 33, every reference I recognize is now a dated reference. So yep. they're the only references I can live on that. But uh, oh, so can um, I can I just uh, throw in something? Speaking of dated yeah. references, so um, it, the, in uh, the Punk uh, Whitmer match. Punk gives Whitmer a backbreaker, and Whitmer does this sell where he's on the ground, like on his side, but like spinning around at the legs. And there, it reminded me so much of a Simpson scene where Homer Simpson like was on the ground, just like on his side, spinning around with his leg, just like. And I actually wrote down. I forgot to say it in the match review, but like Whitmer spins around, Homer Simpson style. Yeah, like if he was in. Break. If BJ Whitmer was in snow, he would have made like a perfect circle just in the snow from like just rotating. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was pretty good. I should make a video where it's like steamed hams, only it's BJ Whitmer. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're up to date on the references. You know the memes the kids like these days. <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think the kids are liking those memes though. I think it's more like people in their thirties. <laughs> <laughs> you know the memes kids like us like, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, 
kids like me who are starting to have knee pain. <laughs> um, so they end the segment. They walk off camera. Colt is still telling Punk more suggestions. I, I, this is a way – if we talked about how like the Paul London segment at the start of the show was funny but seemed to be like ill-fitting, this is a way of an example of doing comedy where it still I feel like works more – in with what they're trying to do where the second city saints are a serious stable, but like Colt is this wacky guy that like punk has to rein in and just put up with rather than just this crazy change that doesn't seem to make sense. Um, yes, I, I like that dynamic a lot and they do a lot of good stuff with it. Yeah. And again, Colt is growing more and more into that role, which will be the role that will serve him for the rest of his career, which is the goofy wacky guy. Maybe not always as much the joke being on him, but and then we get a Carnage Crew promo. They are in the building next to the ring as the ring is being torn down. They're trying to cut a promo but getting angry because of the noise, which to that I say, go backstage to cut your promo. Don't do it right by the ring when they're taking it down after the show. But, of course, they're doing it for specific reasons so they can mock the ring crew, including Dunn and Marcos, the real ring crew express. Then another different member of the ring crew tells DeVito was, to go. I think oh. it was Oman Tortuga. I, I wasn't sure, so I'm glad you pointed that out. He tells DeVito to go home to his crackhead wife. He gets the crap beat out of him for his troubles by the Carnage crew. DeVito tells him to never bring up going home. He doesn't bring up the crackhead wife part. Just don't bring up going home. Don't you ever talk to me about – and yeah, you think he's going to say – or don't you ever talk about my wife. He's like, don't you ever yeah. talk to me about going home. I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yeah, that was a, that was a clever little line. Yeah. And um, – DeVito then tells Loke they're going to go hit a strip club, a dirty strip club, mm-hmm. where they're going to forget all about Loke's ugly wife. So usual, usual Carnage Crew segment with that one fun little line. And then next up, we get the big final segment. And this was a pretty good segment to me. Um, it's Christopher Daniels, Alice in Danger, and Mafia all backstage. You know Mafia's evil now because not only is he wearing a Prophecy t-shirt, he's wearing sunglasses indoors. <laughs> So that's the sure sign that he's joined the dark side. I noticed that. I noted that too. <laughs> um, Daniels talks about the match he's booked for on the next show against Michael Shane, which will never happen because that card will have to be shuffled around. He promotes that. Daniels has Alice in Danger welcome Mafia on behalf of Daniels and Donovan Morgan to the prophecy, which I thought it was funny that she mentioned Donovan Morgan, seeing as how Donovan Morgan is never around. <laughs> although, again, he will also be on the next show so a rare donovan morgan appearance next show it's like sasquatch um, <laughs> he's like Haley's comet but uh so monster mac walks in and he wants to know what the deal with mafia is like everything that's gone on tonight mafia takes off his sunglasses which at that was the point i realized that was the probably the whole reason he wore them for this promo <laughs> and uh he cuts a he, he cuts a pretty good promo about how he's frustrated about being in the mid card frustrated with the code of honor and frustrated about carrying Mac. And I thought everyone's acting here was really good. The thing I loved most was monster Mac looked like a sad puppy. Like he was not screaming back. He was looking down on his feet a lot. He was like, he looked Mac looked like he was going to break into tears yeah. at, a, at a points. He like almost a big he sort of did bear. at the end. Yeah. And, and I actually like they did. They still, even in this segment didn't have, Moff go all the way heel. First of all, they they said he was Dan Moff, like they actually use that name now. But the, he didn't go full heel. You know, he wasn't like super mean to to Monster Mac. He wasn't like I. He said I carried you, 
carried your ass, but he wasn't. He didn't talk him like talk to him like he was a, like like an asshole. He didn't like you know say get out of here loser or anything like that. He was like trying to give him almost like a pep talk, which I you know it was kind of kind of interesting how they played it here. Yeah, it wasn't the typical like split thing where he like attacks them and blames them for everything and says like I hate you now. It was more just like I'm tired of my position. I'm tired of being a team with you. You know, like. I'm just sick of it and I don't want to be around you anymore and I'm frustrated with everything. And yeah, he's being an asshole to him. But and, and again, I thought Max acting is just uh, really good acting. And then also great in the acting is Christopher Daniels head is in the background between Mac and Moff's faces. Like, I don't know if that was intentionally framed or not. And Daniels is making the goofiest faces, like just being so happy every time Moff says something that calls down the code of honor or ring of honor. He's like, like, ha and just like, just like, like cack silently cackling. Like every time mafia, like gives it to ring of honor. He's just so overjoyed. Just three great acting performances simultaneously here. Um, Daniels tells Mac to not take it personally and use this as an opportunity to grow. He reminds Mac that the Hit Squad have a final match together in Pittsburgh, which is the next show, against uh, Ace Steel and Colt Cabana. Mafia then cuts another little promo where he uh, says a more loud, screamy promo where he's not going to lose his last tag match in the Hit Squad to Cabana and Ace Steel. The Prophecy leave and a heartbroken Mac talks a little more. He says the hit squad will not go out as losers. He calls Cabana and a steel quote, steel city saints, whatever you call yourselves, unquote. Um, Mac thanks Daniels for the advice and says he's reborn as the Brooklyn bull, Steve Mac. He gets mad. He hits the walls really hard and says he's coming for ace and Cabana. So I thought this was a really good promo and a really good way to cap off like an all night where you had basically had three, Moff angles, you know, the losing the first match goes into the joining the prophecy goes into this promo. And it's kind of sad when you think about like, this is kind of the high point of that because Mac's going to be gone after the next show. And I wonder wonder how, how much like Mac at this point, like knew he's like, all right, they're probably ditching me at this point. Yeah. And I, I, if I remember correctly, like it's not too long after this or around this time, the hit squad break up as a tag team, basically on the Indies period. Yeah. Like it's not just a ring of honor thing. And I think th- they got back together in recent years. I've seen them wrestle, but, uh, I, they, they broke up like not just, they weren't just breaking up here. They were breaking up basically as an act, I think. Right. And, but yeah, great acting. And again, the, some of the best performances so far in terms of acting in ring of honor so far, even if it, it's weird because on some hands, some points of this work, we're, we're complimenting them for the kind of the nuance they're showing. But on other times we're like, well, it's not quite clear enough. Like it's a hard line to walk where sometimes you want that heel strong heel and face dynamic. And sometimes you like the bit of nuance of like, well, mafia is frustrated, but he's not being a complete asshole. Yeah. It's, it's more, it was more like just that moment was weird when he turned. Cause it was like, it, it, you know, he joined, but he didn't really totally feel like a turn. You know, that's all I was saying. Like, but, but I do, I do appreciate the characterization going on. They, they certainly come a long way from yelling things on buses. Yeah. And they yeah, should have ma- had the whole breakup on a bus. <laughs> Spanky makes an awkward cameo eating Wendy's in the back seat. Like just, uh, yeah, the, the mafia like is way better. And quite frankly, this is pretty high end um, characterization for wrestling in modern times. Like you don't see this much like nuance and subtlety in performances 
in wrestling these days usually. So I really like that. And then we end, we get a little throwback, man. Instead of starting the show with a long techno highlight music video, we end the show with one and it's like long. It's, yeah, it's really many, long. many minutes. It, it covers it's everything like, on the show. Literally eight minutes long. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, for once putting it at the back end is better probably than the front end where you spoil everything that happened. <laughs> so, the growing leaps and bounds or little st- puppy steps either way ring of honor progressing as usual yeah. and that is the epic encounter matt what did you think about the show as a whole um it's interesting because you know there was a lot of stuff that i don't think totally clicked and obviously i didn't like that main event at all or the entire presentation of it with like the randomness going on but overall i would say you know obviously you had the one all-time classic match and in general i just feel like even though this wasn't the best roh show it just it still feels like a promotion that's just in a good place. They have all these people that are over. They have like a lot of different storylines going on that could go in all sorts of different directions. They have a lot of good wrestlers. I think and you know they they're they're stepping up their game production wise. I think that it's like like a not necessarily a great show on its own, but I think it speaks well of the company. I think it just shows they're they're doing something right. They're developing the promotion in a really exciting and good way. And you know you got you got the you, know, you got the second city saints now you got uh, the the new prophecy you know the, those tag teams early on the show with the Backseat Boys and Special K and the Art and Ring Crew Express they're all getting over Joe I think it was off to a pretty good start on this show um, you know obviously London and Danielson although spoiler alert Danielson is gone now for like the next six months yeah um, that's the sad, that's a sad thing yeah for sure yeah. Um, you know. Um, London isn't very long for this company either. Um, Loki is gone for a while, but um, but it just shows like they, they're so they, you know even though like there's a lot of stuff that they need to work on in terms of their booking, they've also done a really good job positioning themselves into a place where this promotion feels solid and full, and like they have a direction and they have a voice and they have a um, they have like kind of a just a, a direction, and I uh, and I and and the quality is pretty good. And obviously, you have that all-time great match that puts it over the top. So I, I thought this was show. I actually liked it from top to bottom better than I expected, even though it wasn't necessarily a great show in the ring. Besides that one match. Yeah, this is a a one-match show if there ever was one. But it there's so many matches where even if they're not good, they feel like they're for, that. Yeah, they're furthering things. It's pushing things forward in a in a in a direction, and I think it also helps that some of the best. Um, out of the ring segments, I think we're on this show. I, I like to cut the ones that bookended the show, and it helps to also that when you say something's a one match show, that that's a great match that was forty minutes. So it's not like you got a great twelve minute match. You you're getting on this show quite a bit of good wrestling. It's just in one spot. And and by the way, just it's just worth contextualizing. Like this isn't a one match show like the Era of Honor begins. Like the Era no. of Honor begins was like a bunch of like sad crap. Um, and one really amazing match. This is like one really amazing match, and then a bunch of stuff that's just not particularly memorable, some good, some bad. But it's like, when we say one match show, it's very different than what we would have meant like the year before. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing is, back in the old days, like the first few Ring of Honor shows, when it was a one match show, it would be like, I'd be asking the question, is this one match worth it for you to buy the show? I think now with the storylines and stuff, it's like, well, the one match is good, but also if you want to keep watching these storylines progress, it's worth it for that too. Like Ring of Honor didn't have that element at first. That's true. It was like if, if, if they didn't have that match that was a, a selling point, 
like I couldn't recommend the show at all. And some, and again, like it's not like none of the other matches were solid. Like there was some other decent stuff in the ring on the show. The four way was was enjoyable, and uh, the tag title match was pretty good. I thought the scramble was was fairly entertaining. Like I told you, I, I saw some some entertainment value in that Punk and Whitmer match. Um, so I mean, there's there's this, there's enough stuff for sure. And you do get variety. You get mat work in the four way. You get just a great pure wrestling match in the two out of three falls. If you're into blood, the blood certainly is there. If you want the crazy high spots, you have the tag title match and the scramble. So there's also pretty good variety on the show too. Yep. And uh, that will do it for us this episode. Thank you, everybody who is tuning in. Uh, last show, ju- our viewers, I mean, our listeners did really well. I was surprised how quickly we broke some old, like, usual numbers that we usually get really good. If you want to contact us, I am at Trevor Dame on Twitter. Matt's at Mayor MGF. Uh, you can email us at through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H for through. Uh, I, we checked the pro wrestling only message board, figure four voices of wrestling, R O H world. Um, we search a lot and well, I do at least. <laughs> and, uh, next time on the show, we will be covering the round Robin challenge Two retribution, which will be a round Robin one night round Robin challenge with Christopher Daniels, Paul London, amazing red plus CM Punk versus homicide. Plus Doug Williams takes on Samoa Joe for the ring of honor title. And Matt, I think that's a show neither you or I have ever seen before. Nope. I've never seen it. Uh, there is someone I know who has seen it, and that person might make a special appearance. I guess we can't ever promise anything because things no. fall through, yeah. but we're trying. Yeah, we might uh, – the second guest might appear. No, no promises because, you know, scheduling and stuff, but plans are in motion to try and make that happen, right. and plans are looking pretty good. So uh, that's it for this time. Matt, anything else to say? No. Uh, thanks for listening as always. Um I you know I really appreciate all the feedback that we're getting. This is this is a really this has been a really fun project, and I like I haven't died, and we've recorded yep. this whole show, so I think we're going to continue for a little while. Yep. So until next time, we're alive. Thank you. Goodbye.